Hello everybody and welcome to the 111th edition of the Chronicles of Podcast. And these right here are the Chronicles of Lash LaRue. It is I, the bearded brummy Jamie, and joining me as always, as always, this handsome devil right here. You got him back in again. Um, so Scott Osman Tom, and welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast. Hey there, you're about to enjoy the Chronicles of Tom and Jamie. Hi everyone, I'm Kevin Matten. Hey guys, my name's Annabelle Knight. Hello, this is Becky Baldwin. Hello, I'm Chesney. Hey, what's up everyone? This is Brayden from Say We Can Fly. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is the Raging Cajun Lash LaRue, former WCW and WWE professional wrestling superstar. You're listening to my friends, my brothers, Tom and Jamie on the Chronicles of Podcast. Don't miss it. Don't ever, don't ever, don't ever say yourself short. Be on here. Be a part of it. Enjoy it. And blessing le bon temps roule. Let the good times roll. I think that obviously you were destined to pursue WCW first and then obviously do the drawing afterwards. Put your hands together as we bring you the chronicles of the raging Cajun, the Cajun sensation that is Lash LaRue. LaRue sets him up. Whoa! That is the whiplash 2000, and that is a three count. The raging Cajun, the youngster. This week, we are joined by character artist and former WCW wrestling superstar Lash LaRue. Lash is a former professional wrestler, most notably known for his time in WCW, holding their tag team championships with a wrestling legend, Chavo Guerrero. Since then, Lash has taken on a new career, though. He is now a caricature artist, creating masterpieces that, quite frankly, you need to see. They are absolutely stunning. They are not your typical seaside caricatures with the noses coming out here and all that jazz. These are beautiful pieces of art. You have to go and check them out right now. This is an incredibly wonderful and very special interview. It is. It is, Jamie. You're right. Um, if you're on a long journey or have some real serious spare time in your hands, this is an interview not to be missed. Uh, but it does equate to about two and a half hours long. So you might want to enjoy it in little bits and pieces. But to us, it did not feel that long. To us, it felt like five minutes. And you're like, hang on a second, which means it's 11.30 at night. Uh, in the UK, that is anyway. Uh, Lash was a gentleman. He is an absolute legend. One of the loveliest people I think we've ever spoken to. Yeah. Um, and we just connected immediately. And uh, you get to hear all about his caricatures, uh, his ideas that he had for the iPads, doing it stuff during the lockdown with, uh, with college and stuff was unbelievable. Um, and obviously all about the WCW days uh, with some phenomenal impressions uh, of Dusty <laughs> Rhodes and whatnot. Yeah, so, and John Laurinaitis, not to be missed. But Jamie! Yes, sir. Do you happen to have any final words at all? Just a massive thank you to our wonderful guest, Lash. It was an absolute honour and a privilege to talk to you, sir. It means the absolute world that you took time out to do so. Thank you very much. Yes, absolutely. I know how busy you are, so uh, we thoroughly appreciate uh, your time as much as we got as well, so it's uh, graciously appreciated. But, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, interviewing this week, it's Lash LaRue. Wow. 
glad that this thing's worked out. Oh, you know, I checked out your podcast, listened to the banter back and forth and some of the topics and the guests that you covered. I thought, I have got to get to know these gentlemen. Oh. <laughs> you're too kind, Mark. We appreciate it massively. Are you happy to go by Mark or Lash or what, what would you like? Or are you not bothered? I'm not bothered either way, man, because uh, we could get to that story as well whenever you guys start asking questions, if you like. And I could tell you about the evolution there and kind oh, of how it has become a balancing act, man. And, and both are extremely appropriate for me. Okay. No I'll worries. That's fine. Time. Yeah. Um, just a very, very, very quick rundown. Uh, appreciate you listening to us, though. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jamie's going to do a really nice introduction uh, just to like bring everybody in sort of thing. And then we're going to absolutely bombard uh, the living hell out of you with questions. How does that sound? Perfect. That's the way that I love it, man. That means it's going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. There's going to be a lot of bobbing and weaving. Yes. <laughs> just how we like it. <laughs> right. Let's do this little introduction. Hello, everyone. Today we are joined by a very special guest. Today's guest is a cartoonist, a caricature artist, Oh, and he also used to wrestle for some of the biggest wrestling companies in the entire world. A man who I have very fond memories of watching run his finger down those impressive sign birds. That's not a sentence I ever thought I'd say. Today's guest is a former WCW tag team champion with wrestling legend Chavo Guerrero Jr., but we won't dwell on the length of that title reign. A former misfit in action known by many names like Mark LaRue, Corporal Cajun, Lash LaRue, but today we have the esteemed honour of calling him our guest. Ladies and gents, ladies and dems, put your hands together as we bring you the chronicles of the raging Cajun, the Cajun sensation that is Lash LaRue. Thank you, gentlemen. Man, do I feel that as though I am among scholars. It's hard to beat an introduction like that. I almost feel like a big deal. <laughs> you are, sir. That is why. Uh, um. But I suppose we should get into the really hard hit stuff straight away, get it out of the way, then we can get into the fun bit. How have the last few years been with the pandemic for you? Like, I uh, just, 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 on a, you know, obviously with everything being shut down and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, game changing for me. And, and the reason why is because pre pandemic, and I'll try not to be long winded with this, dude, but, you know, you have a lot of success that's uh, front loaded on your life. And what ends up happening is very often, if you retire at a young age, as I did, around 30, 32 years old, because I started wrestling so young, you ask yourself, what's next? And culture is sort of wrapped up in this ideology that if you don't have your crap together by the time you're in your 30s, why are you still living in your mom's basement and living off their dole? And why can't you figure out life and stop playing video games? However, if you have to have some success and you're on the back end of that, in your, in your early 30s, mid 30s and you've already retired and done well for yourself and created a name people say well your best years are behind you and they'll never be that good again and so I had plenty of injuries from wrestling I had that type of depression from feeling like the carpet was pulled out from underneath me in that aspect of the business and I just had some losses in my life that had sort of added up and it turned into a lot of depression that I didn't realize I was even facing until I hit 40 in 2016 and I turned 40 I weighed 316 pounds guys I don't know what that is in stones but it's a lot I look like lash ain't lash I look like one of those Russian nesting dolls where there should be a smaller one inside right and uh, I decided man I was doing that and I was taking a lot of medication to cover up the injuries and the difficulties and I thought man this is not sustainable and I refuse to believe that the second half of my life can't be every bit as special and as awesome as the first half of my life. And so 
I completely reinvented myself at that point. I dropped like a hundred pounds. I don't know what that is in stones, but it's a lot. And so I, I dropped all that weight, got back in shape, fell back in love with fitness and working out, started getting game plans for my caricature work and what I could do with that from a business standpoint. When the pandemic hit, I kept rolling. I see every difficulty in life and every problem as an opportunity to strategize and say, okay, what can I do differently? You in this world, I believe, guy, you know, you take it for what it's worth, but you can either be a problem finder or you can be a problem solver. And for me, when I saw the pandemic hit and suddenly all of these live events that I had booked where I show up and I draw funny pictures of people and interact with their guests are gone. Nobody can have live book bookings and live events. So I went digital. And when I went digital, I really started utilizing uh, technology from the standpoint of not only being able to draw digitally, but using that to enhance my caricature talents that while I'm sitting at home, I'm going to get better at the skill that I have. But one more tool in the old toolbox, figure out how this technology thing can work, even when I go live again and do live events. And now what it's turned into is a big lucrative aspect of my business are digital caricatures. So I will do digital caricatures now live as well. I'll fly out next week, as a matter of fact, and go to San Antonio, Texas for three days and do a conference where I'll draw directly on an iPad. It'll show on a flat screen TV behind me that draws people to the vendor's booth. When I print it out, I print it out four by six. So the lanyard or the name tag that the guests are wearing is their caricature, the company's information pre-printed on there, and also has a booth number, so it keeps driving people back to their booth. And so sometimes people come to get drawn. Some people come because they remember me from wrestling and they want to get their picture taken with me. Sometimes they just heard that I've got some great stories and I'm entertaining, I'm engaging, and it's my job to just keep bringing traffic in so that while they're competing with 150, 500 other vendors, they're getting all the traffic. And so now suddenly, I have taken technology instead of sitting at home in my studio and just doing whatever I can do just to scrape by. I said, how can we do this, take it on the road, enhance it, do something nobody else is doing and really take it to the next level. So I take problems like that, even the pandemic. And I say, man, what can I do to utilize this and leverage it in a way that I'm going to come out the other side stronger than I was before instead of weaker. That is amazing. <laughs> that is <laughs> genius at the highest level. I've never heard of that either. So it's like something completely niche that nobody else is doing. Like the fact that you just go, this is what you look like. Now it's on your lanyard. Enjoy. By the way, tell everybody else. And everyone's oh, that's amazing. I want one of those as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and where a lot of that started for me was, uh, for instance, I had some colleges that would book me on a regular basis. It's very popular among college students to come in during orientation at the university and when they're finding their way around. And then I'll have a line of 500 kids deep, the students that are waiting to get drawn and I have to draw one face every three minutes. Well, when when the pandemic hit and they can't have me on campus anymore, we put our heads together and they go, but they just love it so much. We want to do something for them. And so similar to what we're doing right now, I Zoomed with them just as I'm Zooming with you. I had a separate camera for that so that I could utilize my iPad in front of me I drew directly on my iPad what I'm looking at right now on the screen so I could draw you theoretically in the same way. When I saved it, I saved it to a Dropbox. And on your end, beside your station, wherever your camera is set up, you had that QR code for that Dropbox link right there hanging beside you. So all you had to do as a student 
is to scan that with your phone. You've got your uh, caricature instantly on your phone and you just walk on to class and do whatever's next. That is incredible. That is, well, the, yeah. the amount of people we spoke to on this show that have, t- have told us like these great stories of how they've made the best of the bad situation that it was. You know, we're all locked at home, but they managed to still do their jobs and do it. That is possibly my favorite story of anyone doing that. That is incredible. What a fantastic way to adapt like technology to what you're doing. Ah, oh, that is well, fantastic. I, that, that's life, though, right? That's life, man. And, Jamie, I, mean, I look at it like this. So when I started wrestling and first began training, I was a very, very young man. I was right out of high school. And there was a fellow there in the training center that was not a very good professional wrestler. But, man, he had some boxing skills. He had been in the military, been in the service, and learned how golden gloves boxed then. And here in America, before MMA became a big thing and UFC became a big thing, in the early 90s and mid-90s, we had this thing called tough men competitions. And I don't know if you guys have something equivalent or if you've ever heard of it, but it was kind of a no-holds-barred, put them in a Mm. boxing ring, and you had a bunch of local guys come in, and anybody and everybody, it's a free-for-all, right? And, uh, you know, it's, it's not unlike back in the day how wrestling started with the carnival workers, right? You set up a ring and anybody can come in and challenge the wrestler and, you know, see how it works out for you. Well, they'd have these tough men competitions and there's a pool of money at the end of it. And whoever wins the thing can, uh, can take that money with them. And there's really not a whole lot of rules, not a lot of strategy. It's just, man, two guys get in there slugging it out like they would in a bar room or in a pub, right? And uh, so what you wind up getting, your pool of talent that entered those types of competitions are your local coal miners, your local pulp wooders, your guys that work construction, your good old boys, what we call here uh, in Alabama rednecks, guys that are going to drink a lot of beer, get about half drunk so they don't hear any, feel anything, and just throw haymakers and hope they knock each other out. <laughs> they're also usually not athletes, and they're gassed about three, three rounds in. Right, if they get that far, three minutes in. Well, anyway, this guy that was trained for this, he was a great athlete, and he found out really quick nobody could compete with him if he walked in there and just boxed them straight away and just used some finesse and some talent, and those guys are throwing windmill, and he's in better shape, and he's going to knock them out. So I would train with him some to help him out, prepare for these things. I didn't know much about boxing at the time, and I thought it would be fun for me to learn the skill. And also, I could help him train, and I could spar with him, give him a partner. So I asked him. I said all that to say this. I asked him one day, I go, to, okay, to be a proper boxer, to be a good athlete when it comes to the boxing ring, what's the most important thing, man? Do I need to learn head movement? Do I need to learn good footwork? Do I, do I need to learn how to put some combos together? Do I need a strong jab? And he said, no, you need to learn how to take a punch. <laughs> he said, the reason why is because I don't care who you are. Mike Tyson sooner or later is going to get hit and knocked out, right? Be like, Muhammad Ali is going to get knocked down. Somebody's going to catch you at some point or other. So the question then when it comes to being a successful boxer is, what do you do when you get knocked down in that ring and you hit the mat and everybody's looking at you and wondering, are you going to get up? And, dude, that is life. Now, whether you're talking about a COVID pandemic, whether you're talking about a loss in your family, someone you love died, or whether you're talking about I lost a job, man, life is all about can you take the punch? And when you take the punch, do you pop up from it better than you were before and ready to fight again and not giving up and not willing to take failure as an option? 
Or do you lay there and wait until they get the 10 count out of the way and say, well, I did my best and hang your head down and walk away. Then you learn how to take a punch. That is, that is beautiful. That is in, that's <laughs> beautiful. That's inspiring. I, I love that. But before we before we start getting properly into your career, I want to take us back to the start to a young master rage and Cajun, you could say. What yes. did you what what did you want to be when you were growing up when you were a small boy growing up? What I wanted to be when I grow up was not poor. <laughs> <laughs> so here's how it started with me, guys. This is honest to God truth. So my mom raised five kids here in rural Alabama. She quit school in the eighth grade and uh, had five kids she was trying to take care of. We lived in houses that didn't have running water or electricity just because we could not pay the power bill. And I started working when I was nine years old. Um, I, I was part of a local church. My faith is very important to me. And where I attended church, uh, we had some people there in the church that were business leaders in the local community. And they had uh, they built houses for residential construction. They had some clothing stores. And they were just leaders within the church. And uh, there was a Sunday, Saturday was going to roll around that they were going to take this big trip to a theme park and take some kids to the theme park. I didn't have money for a ticket. I, I come from a poor family. We had... We had times when we really literally did not have food in the house for us to eat. And uh, we were just that poor. And uh, these people approached me and they go, look, we know you can't afford a ticket. I'm at nine years old, but you know, you can come over to our house. We've got some work that you can do and we'll pay you and give you some money. And that'll help you, you know, have a, as much fun that day as everybody else does. So I went over to the house, washed their cars down for them and mowed their lawn for them and did some yard work. And this was about 1985 that, I made about uh, made about thirty bucks off of it, which was pretty good for a nine year old in nineteen eighty five, right? In 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 Alabama, and I realized right away, man, I've got this thing called work ethic. I've got this ability to do some labor, and if I put that forward in service, people will pay me for this. I can get money, right? And so once I realized that, I never stopped working after that. And Pete, there was always somebody that was willing to utilize me for something if I had a great attitude and I was willing to put the effort in. So I parlayed that day of cutting grass and earning a little bit of money into working for that family on a regular basis, just cleaning up job sites where they're building houses. And then when I got to be about 11 or 12, um, you know, I lived with I, I, I would go and work with them and started actually building the houses with them. And then when I got 13, 14 years old, I was working in the clothing stores, selling clothes to people. And when I got to be 15 years old, something happened in my life that caused this big fracture. And uh, when I was 11 or 12, my mom had a boyfriend. And I, I don't tell this story as freely. I tell it much more freely now than I did in the past because my mom has since passed away, you know, and I never want to paint her in any kind of a, a negative light because she did a wonderful job raising her kids the way she did. Every one of us has turned out just top notch. Uh, and so, but she had a boyfriend when she was about, uh, when I was about 11 or 12 and uh, he beat her, he abused her one night. I mean, badly to such an extent that the police were called in. She locked herself in a room for about a week so nobody could really see the, the damage that was done. And the only reason why I found out about it is because back then, pre-internet and pre-digital age, when the police would come around and they take a report on something like that, they had to take for evidence Polaroid photos of the damage that happened and put that mm -hmm. in with the, if you're familiar with a Polaroid camera, an instant photo pops out when you take the picture, right? And you've got a hard copy photo. 
So they put that with the paperwork and I found that one day and I realized what had happened. And fast forward a few years, he had done that when I was about 11 or 12, when I was 15, he tried it again. And I wasn't too young to do anything about it anymore. And I took a baseball bat to him and, uh, and kind of had my way with him for a change. And I come from a, a, like I said, a big family. I have an older brother, a younger brother. I'm the small one in the family. And uh, we all just kind of had to separate after that because he owned the house that we lived in and we couldn't afford to go anywhere else. So different, different family members moved in with other family members. And at the time, I was very involved in my school, uh, not only work in the community, but also playing American football for the for high school there, wrestling on the wrestling team. I would end up winning a state championship wrestling. We won a state championship in football. We went undefeated that year. So it was really kind of a storybook, Bill. And I learned really, really quick that if nobody outworks me and I do everything I can possibly do, then I can have some control over how successful I become. So when you asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up was actually what I always thought about was this. I just want to be successful. I want to do well for myself. And what's the most professional thing I could do? And right out of high school, I decided I wanted to be a doctor. The choice is going to be doctor or lawyer for me to make a lot of money and have a very good professional career, right? For whatever reason, I I chose doctor and started taking those classes. I realized really quick, looking back, I had no business thinking I was going to do that. But, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this story, about halfway through my freshman, my sophomore year in college and in university is when I went and tried out for wrestling and it just popped for me and it fell into place. But I utilize that story also to tell people this. We ask young people all the time. We ask children and kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's, a, it's an appropriate question because it's never too early to start thinking about those things and preparing for them. But the thing I point out to these young groups when I have an opportunity to speak to them is this. I don't think that question of what you want to be when you grow up is near as important as who do you want to be when you grow up? Because if who you are is a someone of good moral character and great work ethic, man, and you get along well with people and you're a problem solver instead of a problem finder and people want to be around you and you're not willing to give up and you can take a punch like we talked about before, you're more than likely going to be successful in whatever you turn your hand to. Absolutely. Oh, it's probably the most inspirational conversation I think I've ever had in my entire life. I'm like, like every every answer, it's bloody right, you know. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but it's funny because I was doing my research earlier, and you were saying how you've done all these different things. And I was like, so he was did amateur college, college wrestling, and then his college football, and then he studied pre med, then he took time away from pre med to do follow up in his art career, and I was like. I can't keep up here, Lash. Like, what? what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Well, I've always been a firm believer in this. You know, I, I feel like you should never in life be afraid to fail at something. So if you think, okay, I have an interest in this and I want to see what happens with it. And do I have a talent for it? Do I have an ability to do it? And so what if you don't, man? And, and I've got a great advantage. You know, I tell my story and share my story with people. And all the time they talk about how inspirational it is. And I take that to heart. I'm, great, I'm grateful for that. Don't misunderstand me. But they also say, oh, poor you. And, and it's a shame that you had to go through those things. And no child should have to face the things that you had to face. And nobody should be homeless their junior and senior year of high school. Like I was homeless my junior and senior year of high school. I, I slept on the floor of that clothing store is where I lived when I went to school throughout high school. 
And so people look back at that and they go, man, that's just no kids. You have to go through that. I'll look at that and I'm thankful and grateful that I did because here's what happens. If you, I was able to front load a lot of adversity instead of spreading it out throughout my life. So by the time I got into an adult life or got to a point where I could make some big, hard decisions on what direction I want to go in, dude, at that point, I'm like a guy going to Las Vegas that's playing with house money. I'm so far ahead of the game there mm-hmm. that how much would I have to lose for it to get so bad that I'm sleeping on the clothing store floor again and I've got no food in my refrigerator? Like it may get bad for me. But I could flip burgers at a fast food restaurant. It's not going to be that bad. So why should I be afraid of failure? Why shouldn't I go out and step out and try to do what I, because I've already proved to myself that if things do get that bad, I could pull myself back up from my bootstraps. So what am I afraid of? A few people scoffing at me because I tried. Man, what was it Theodore Roosevelt, the great American president, said back in the day? He said, man, to the, the credit doesn't deserve any credit at all because he's not the one in the arena trying and, and failing and trying mightily and maybe he comes up short, but at least he tried. You know, that's who I want to be. I want to be the guy that tried, man. He punched me in the mouth. I don't care. I don't have to be the quarterback. I just let me have a jersey. Let me be on the team, you know. I don't have to be the star. Just, just let me in the game and let's see what I'm able to accomplish. That's, that's amazing. But – it says, obviously, I've, I've took this off Wikipedia. We we all know how reliable Wikipedia can be. But it said you I got took... a Wikipedia story, so I don't want to interrupt your train of thought, <laughs> but let's circle back around to that when you get a chance. Okay. Great, great. <laughs> I was just going to say, it says on there that you took a, a break from your pre-med to focus on your art career. Yeah. So what made you decide to go, like, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to go focus on art? What, what, did, what did you actually do to go focus on your art? So, so here was the evolution for me personally. Um, I've always enjoyed drawing. And, and when I was a child, I was a big wrestling fan. I'm a child of the 80s, right in the middle of Hulkamania, right? So I was primed for that. And I fell away from wrestling in the early 90s because, number one, I was so busy just surviving all the stuff we just talked about. And number two, wrestling as a product got really bad in the early 90s before it got good again, right? So it was easy for me to take a break from wrestling. But I was a big fan of wrestling growing up. And even though I was a big fan of wrestling, I never saw that as something I could do as a living or professionally. And I never even aspired to it. Same way with my art. I always enjoyed drawing. I was the kid that you always saw drawing funny pictures, but I never thought that it would become a profession for me. And I did it all through high school. And at some point, I uh, I found Mad Magazine. I don't know if you guys have ever remembered Mad Magazine. I know what I just, Yeah. Yeah, so Mad Magazine was really well known as a humor magazine that would parody movies and TV shows. And for that to work, man, when they're making fun of Doctor Who, for instance, it's got to look like those actors that play those characters, right? So it's very caricature-driven before I even knew what a caricature was. So while my friends are showing me these pictures that they have copied out of comic books of Batman and trying to impress me, I'm going... Look, I love me some Batman, but you've just drawn a square head with not a lot of detail. I don't know what you're trying to impress me with from a skill level. Yeah, but I can open up Mad Magazine. I'm going, you're making fun of Top Gun, and dang it, there's Tom Cruise. You don't have to tell me that's Tom Cruise. It looks just like him, even though it's a cartoon. That blew my mind. It was like black magic to me, guys. So I I looked at that, and I said, that's what I want to do. And I started drawing characters and I drew them all through high school and everything else. Well, when I started university, started college and began my studies with a bent towards pre-med, 
you can imagine how difficult a lot of those classes are. I was mm -hmm. having to take genetics courses and chemistry courses and biology courses. And each one of those one hour lectures would be immediately followed by a two hour lab where you did practical exercises based on that lecture. And it was so mentally draining that I fell back into what I loved before, which was my artwork that I said, I've got to take some electives anyway. I want to follow this two hour lab with something where I can just relax. And they had a figure study class and it wasn't going to provide any kind of great talent for me going forward or great skill, but I thought it might be relaxing for me to go to this figure study class and just draw, you know, charcoal sketches of whoever's posing that day just as a release. And while I'm doing that and realizing how much I loved art my entire life, I'm also a very autodidactic person. And if I take an interest in something, I'm going to find as many books as I can that cover that subject. And I'm going to start reading and reading and reading. And my, my first love was caricature and cartooning, not so much uh, the fine arts of sculpture or painting or that sort of thing. I enjoy it, but it wasn't my first love. And so I started looking at books on illustration. And even back then, magazines and those publications were still a big deal. And you could make a pretty good living drawing single panel cartoons for magazines. And so I thought, you know what? I, I began reading these books and I realized for you to be published in a magazine or for them to buy your cartoon for a newspaper, you didn't need a degree for that. You submitted your work and it was either good enough for them to pay you for it or it wasn't. And back then, everything was just regular mail, right? So I said, you know what? I'm going to take a semester off from uh, from 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 school and I'm going to just try my hand at doing some single panel cartoons for magazines that to see if they buy and just submit them. And then I'm going to go to, uh, I'm going to try to develop a couple of comic strips and submit them to some syndicates to see if they make it in the newspapers. And so I took about two or three months of doing that. And I would literally just go to bookstores and find reference books that had the addresses of these publications. And I would draw my little cartoons. I'd stuff them in an envelope and I'd send them off to them. And everything was done by traditional post back then. So you'd have to wait, you know, six to eight weeks to get any kind of response whatsoever. Ironically, during that same time, my life had finally started settling in a little bit. I was already engaged by then. I was going to school with my wife, who would become my wife. She was my fiance at the time. And uh, uh, I, life was a little bit easier. I wasn't constantly having to work to support myself. And I was getting by. And I was doing okay. So I had enough leisure time to pick up wrestling again. And that was right in the middle of about 95, 96, 97, when the NWO exploded in WCW, if you're familiar with that product at all. And, and Hulk Hogan who had been this iconic hero his entire career, has now turned villain and joined the NWO. And all this grabbed my attention because they started a Monday night show that came on the exact same time that Monday Night Raw came on with WWE. So they're going head-to-head -head in the States here. Same time slots, different channels. Which product are you going to choose? Are you Coke or Pepsi? Right? It was that type of dichotomy. And so – Fans began to gravitate towards WCW, and like a lot of fans from the 80s, I got pulled into WCW as a product because at the top of the card, they had these guys I grew up watching. Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, mm -hmm. Sting, uh, Roddy Roddy Piper. You had the Macho Man, Randy Savage, all these iconic guys that everybody recognized, as well as some new faces coming in like Goldberg. 
And and then in the middle of the card, all the guys that would go on to be superstars in wrestling, like an Eddie Guerrero and a Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit, and all these guys were in the mid-card of WCW. And then at the bottom of the card, you had this new thing that was coming in that was very Mexican-style, Lucha Libre-influenced cruiserweight wrestling. And that was entertaining and, and a totally different product to watch. So I began watching that. I, I was maybe two or three weeks in when they were doing big enough business that they were based out of Atlanta, Georgia, which is about a two-hour drive from where I live in Alabama. And they had open tryouts. So I looked at my fiance. I said, you know what? I'm going to go and try out. There's no way I'm going to make it. But it's another one of those moments in my life, like we were talking about, where I go, what, what do I got to lose? So what if I fail at it? I may get a great story where I meet Ric Flair and shake his hand and can tell that story for the rest of my life or something. And so I went to that tryout. And oddly enough, I just fell right into that. And that came natural to me. And, and I bring in the wrestling tie-in because as soon as I made it in WCW, as soon as I found out, not necessarily made it in WCW, because at that point, all they did was uh, verify and validate that you had enough talent that they were willing to train you if you paid them to train you. But I saw that as an opportunity that I wanted to pursue. And the moment that I saw that as an opportunity I wanted to pursue, I got a response from the Saturday Evening Post, which was a pretty big publication at the time there in the United States out of New York, and I sold a cartoon to them. So I always say, I wonder which direction I would have gone had I gotten that check from the Saturday Evening Post first before I went forward and, and did the wrestling thing. So wrestling became more of a, uh, it became more of a priority for me over my cartooning at the time. But that's kind of the timeline that led into my career. Because it's, it's like things happen for a reason, though, don't they, really? I think that obviously you were destined to pursue WCW first and then obviously do the drawing afterwards. I think had life have wanted to throw you, throw you that first, you would have got the check first. You would have got that letter. Do you know what I mean? I, I always believe yeah. in that thing. So, Absolutely. Like, I don't know if you guys are familiar or not because he's a very iconic American artist. But throughout the uh, middle part of, of the uh, 20th century here in the United States, you had Norman Rockwell. Like, throughout the yeah. war years and everything else, he was this great iconic artist that did these. Back then, the covers of magazines <laughs> were literally large oil paintings. And they were commercial illustrations, but they were done as traditional art. And you would take the canvas in and they'd have to take a photo of that. And so you can go to museums now and see these large paintings, large scale paintings that Norman Rockwell did. That would be iconic covers of like a family sitting down to an American Thanksgiving uh, dinner or the war is now over and it's V-Day. And, and he's captured that moment. And he did that for about... 60, 45, 50 years for the Saturday Evening Post. And it became one of those things that every cover was just about was a Norman Rockwell photo. And there's books full of his artwork. So it was very iconic. And I, I, I bring that up because for me to have sold one of my very first cartoons to the Saturday Evening Post would be like someone that liked to play football a little on the side suddenly got an opportunity to play in the Super Bowl. <laughs> you know, it was, it was an amazing feeling. And it's one of those... Uh, achievements in my life that mean a lot to me that really won't be much of an asterisk or a footnote in, in the history to anybody else. But to me, it was a big deal and a big turning point. Now, it's funny you mentioned how it seems life takes you down a path and he does it for a reason. And it really enhanced my 
my artwork being in wrestling first because the way that evolution wound up happening for me and what led to what I do now is once I began wrestling and once I went through the training and I finally gave them enough of an impression that they signed me to a contract and they put me on the roster. I was on the road 300 days out of a year back then, you know, so we were gone constantly. You had to be in a different arena every night in a different town for a show that doesn't go live till 7 p.m. You had to be there at noon because they want to make sure no one's lost their luggage. Everybody's got their wrestling gear and nobody's missed a flight. Uh, they want to make sure that if you have local media, you've got time to do those interviews, anything and everything. So you have to be there early. Well, if you don't have a lot of that stuff to do, you've got some downtime, right? You've got a little bit of extra time on your hands. I would get bored. And some of the some of the guys in the back would sit around and play cards or they'd play dominoes. I bought a pack of dry erase markers because I noticed every locker room we were in had whiteboards. And so I started drawing the guys in the back on the whiteboards just to entertain <laughs> And there were other there were other wrestlers like uh, one I will never forget that I'm always thankful for that his encouragement was a guy that wrestled as Mr. Perfect Kurt Hennig. And he loved anything. Yes, Mr. Perfect loved anything that was a practical joke or very humorous or just fun or that he could take a dig at somebody and just a, a you know, jest with them in a loving way, not being malicious at all. But he would see me drawing. He goes, oh, hey, kid, hey, kid. Draw Hulk Hogan. So I draw Hulk Hogan. He goes, now draw him really old. Uh, okay. Now draw him with an oxygen mask and a walker. Trying to help him. But come on, now, Kurt, he's in the other room, man. You're, I'm like 20 years old. You're going to get me fired. They go, I don't worry about it. You just tell them if they don't. You don't write the news. You just report it. So I've used that line ever since then. And sure enough, knowing that the guys in the back enjoy it and find it fun and kind of gather around while I would draw. But the editors and publishers from wrestling magazines saw what I could do. And so they came in and they asked me to do cartoons for the wrestling magazines. And that was incredibly freeing for me, man. It was, you talk about being an easy gig for me because I wasn't expected to be a professional artist. I was a professional wrestler that could kind of sort of draw. That was the novelty. The novelty is not here's a cartoon on wrestling, but Here's a cartoon on wrestling by professional wrestler Lash LaRue, and I called it Lashing Out. You know, and yes. every month I was a different cartoon. Yeah. And so those things, like Mad Magazine, were very heavily caricature-driven because if I'm poking a little fun at Goldberg or Sting or Kevin Nash, I wanted the drawing to look like that person. I wanted the, the reader to instantly know who this subject of this little joke is. And so that's where I really developed my caricature skills. And I did that for about 12 years. And I also developed my rudimentary professional skills from the standpoint of I literally went from my very first cartoon I gave them was a hard copy on a sheet of typing paper that I had drawn and penciled, inked, and colored with colored pencils and markers. And by the time 12 years went by, um, at the end of my career of doing those cartoons for the wrestling magazines, I was doing everything digitally and I was emailing in my work, you know? So it, it went, I went a long way towards teaching me a few skills every single month. I pushed myself a bit more and more. Well, what if I just drew the subjects and the real detailed work by hand, but I scan it in the computer and use this new thing I've found called Photoshop and just airbrush in a background. 
Well, now I figured out I can take Photoshop and I can Photoshop in the, the wrestler's actual merchandise in his T-shirt, put it on his T-shirt and his card. So now he's even more recognizable, you know. And I started developing these little skills as I went. And I'm a firm believer in whatever you're putting your hand to in this world, man. Whatever it is, you're developing some skills as you go. Let me take those skills, and that's one more tool in my own toolbox. So when I get to the point that I can really do what I'm passionate about and what I want to do, how many tools do I have in this toolbox that I can now leverage for this new endeavor that I'm pursuing? Absolutely. But what's funny is you were saying how early on, like you fell off wrestling in the early nineties and stuff. But if you'd gone to WWF and they'd seen that you drawing backstage, you know, that would have been your gimmick, right? Like you oh, would absolutely. have been, you, you would have been doing promos. Like I'm going to beat this man and drawing a picture of him and a thing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And even now with technology being what it is, I've even thought about what it could be for me to have an iPad standing in the middle of the ring like you would hold a microphone, but I could draw directly on the iPad. I'm sure that there is a, a, a way that you could wirelessly connect with that big Titantron and let it come up on the oh, big yeah. screen whenever I'm drawing, you know. So, yeah, those opportunities are there. And those are the things that my mind has always been working towards. And now I'm at a point where I'm trying to – See, how can I leverage those two things together in a certain way? Um, I did the first wrestling-related event that I've, I've done in 13 years, about a month and a half ago. And it was just that sort of thing where, okay, if I go into a convention now, what makes me stand out from any other wrestling, if you want to use the term legend or whatever else, that now is retired and he's just signing autographs at his booth? Well, how about this? Instead of me just signing old photos of myself, you sit down right in front of me and I'll draw your caricature. How did you like develop your style with caricaturing? Because obviously it's obviously like cartoonish, like large head, small body type style, but how, what's like a Lash LaRue caricature? Yeah. So I, I try to, I try to walk that fine line between being detailed and getting a good likeness of someone and being extremely fast without being too cartoony. I like the cartoony stuff, but I'm not the guy either. And, I run into this a lot, especially these days, right? I'm going to do caricatures at an event and people are a little hesitant at first until they see my style because what they're used to now is you see a lot of popular TikTok videos and, and other uh, Instagram posts where someone has maybe just slightly a slight overbite and now they've drawn them like a horse and their teeth are way out here yeah. or their nose is a little long and all of a sudden the nose is the biggest thing on a piece of paper and you need an extra sheet of paper for the rest of the nostrils. <laughs> I, I don't Look, I'm not that guy because now you're drawing something that's funny to one person you because you drew it and you think it's hilarious if you're sitting down and i'm drawing your caricature i want to draw something that exaggerates certain features so that you're instantly recognizable but i believe there's always a way to do that in a flattering way and i'm also trying to capture a person to the extent that i can in a short amount of time capture their personality so if i have a young lady sit down in front of me and she seems a bit flirty I'll draw her a little flirty. If, if she seems a bit sassy, then I'll draw a little, you know, shoulder cocked up and she's looking at you, making a little look at, if she seems serious or she seems like she's someone that doesn't humor easily, then I'll draw her kind of a little look on her face like she's not sure what to think about. So you can use expression a lot to uh, help you grab, gather, gather that likeness. And for people that know their personalities, they'll go, oh yeah, that she makes that face all the time is what they'll say, you know? And, yeah, the same thing is, is for instance, um, if I could sit down and draw a caricature of you and 
the average person would say, okay, so what do you do? Draw a baseball cap and just a lot of beard. Well, you, yeah, to a certain extent, and that would be passable. And people, yeah, okay, I see this. You, but you're also going to have a unique way that you smile when something really, uh, you know, becomes off humorous to you and surprises you. Or you have a certain way that your your eyes light up if you're talking about something that's important to you. And I want to see how can I capture that expression underneath the beard and everything else so that that's really coming through. And, and you have to do all this, by the way, in a very short amount of time. Because if you're doing a large event and there's 300 people standing in line, you've got to knock those things out as fast as you possibly can. That is talent, Lash. That is serious, serious talent. A man of many. Yeah. (laughs) It it helps you learn a lot of things too, though. Because, see, by nature, I'm a perfectionist. So one of the things I struggled with early on when I started doing live events and caricature is I would uh, take way too long. Because I wanted every drawing that I did to be perfect. And I wanted the person I'm drawing to love it. Right. And a couple of things uh, became epiphanies for me that I've now been able to apply to every other aspect of my life as well. And that's this. First and foremost, if I sit down, I don't like to be the best artist in the world. I'm going to be better than you. Because if I'm drawing you, the person I'm trying to impress in that moment is you. And I want you to enjoy yourself. And I want you to like the drawing when I'm done with it. So even if it's not something I consider a home run that I've knocked out of the ballpark or something I consider 1,000% perfect, if I turn it around and you're shocked at how good you think it is and you're excited about it and and you're laughing and, and, and you enjoyed the entire experience, I've done my job. I've done my job. And here's the other thing that I figured out. If you have any talent at all at anything, I don't care if it's podcasting. I don't care if it's building houses. I don't care if it is sculpture or if it's painting a picture or singing or if it's music. If you have any level of talent whatsoever, look, you've got what you've got. Right. Yep. You're as good as you are. Now, always try to do your best and always try to get better. But, hey, man, I've got what I've got. And so I'm not going to knock myself over the head trying to be absolutely perfect in every drawing, especially when I have found that when I just let go, usually my best is good enough. Like if I'm doing my best in that moment and I drew the best drawing that I could draw right there on the fly, even if it's not perfect, man, it's good enough. And usually my first instincts are pretty good. The first thing that jumps out at me that I think is, is, uh, worthy of me exaggerating and enhancing in the drawing, I'm usually right and spot on. Whereas if I'm in my studio at home and there's nobody around, there's no instant feedback and people aren't enjoying the experience with me, I will rework and rework and rework just Mm. because maybe I thought I drew the left nostril a little bit bigger than the right nostril, you know, and, (laughs) and I lose the entire drawing and I lose the spontaneity and the fun and the whimsy in the moment. So it's made it more freeing for me even when I do caricatures at home now where I can really start drawing, knock out a quick commission and go, yeah, that's pretty good. I'm going to leave it there. I'm pretty good at this. I'm thinking about doing it professionally. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Obviously, we've got you here. We can't not talk about the professional wrestling career. So I do, I do want to touch base on it a little bit at least. So you, you were saying, like, you got your start in the power plant. But obviously, modern fa- modern fans today will be familiar with like the WWE Performance Center and that sort of stuff. But what was the power plant like? Because I get I get this feeling it's a million miles away from what you see now with like the Performance Center and things like that. Yes, um, 
it was a forerunner to the performance center in the sense that I would say the power plant was the first true um, facility that any large wrestling company had where they strictly tried to train and bring forward their own in-house talent. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I said it that way is, you know, even at that time back then that the power plant was around, WWE had what they called their training territories, which were essentially local wrestling organizations that they would pay to do extra training for the guys that they sent over there that they thought had potential. But even then, that's not WWE's fingerprints, and that's not their performance center where they're spitting and polishing everything exactly the way they want it. They're just trusting whoever's in charge there locally to do things their way, do business their way, and, and send some talent back you know, as a return on the bargain, right? WCW Power Plant was the first place that really said we need our own in-house training facility strictly for WCW talent to come forward. But it was certainly far more primitive than what you see now in the Performance Center, right? And and it literally was. You walked in, and the first day that I did my trial, man, I didn't know what to expect. I'd never been around the professional wrestling business. I didn't know about you in professional wrestling. I At that time, I didn't even know how much of it was scripted and storyline and how much of it was real. I was still a fan. And uh, I walked in and this was basically a warehouse. And it's a warehouse space in an industrial area of Atlanta that WCW had rented out and put about three wrestling rings in and some really old shoddy gym equipment. And that was the end. And, and, And so they had one guy that was in charge of the whole thing. And the guy that was sort of the director over the whole power plant was this old school wrestler who had been a big star from about the mid 50s through the 70s and early 80s. His name was Jody Hamilton, and he wrestled as the original assassin. And Jody Hamilton is the father of uh, former WWE referee Nick Patrick. So Jody Hamilton, there's a little bit of lineage there. And Jody Hamilton was, was a great mind. He was known for really understanding the psychology of professional wrestling. And this was just a big guy that then he was in his late fifties, early sixties, probably. So he's way past his prime when it comes to getting in the ring. So there was other trainers that could get in the ring and actually show you the ropes literally and figuratively. And there were guys by the name of Dwayne Bruce was probably the head trainer. And he wrestled as Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker. And then you had a guy that was Pistol Pez Watley that became a little bit of a regional star back in the 80s. And then you had a guy by the name of Mike Wiener that was just, he was a guy that was pretty good at teaching you the basics. There wasn't much beyond that. Sarge was really the intensity and the driving force behind it all. He was the guy that really got in there and mixed things up, so to speak. And so you walked in and they called him Sarge because he had been a legitimate drill sergeant in the United States Coast Guard. And the first day that I walked into this power plant, man, it was not getting in the ring, nothing else. It was Sarge walking in, dropping his bag and going, grab a bucket. You're like, what does that mean? Grab a bucket? And you look around and there's these five gallon buckets all around where, and, and traditionally in the United States, that's something that they would put paint in. If you're if you're painting an industrial area or something like that, right, can hold five gallons of paint. So it's a five gallon bucket, which essentially would stand probably about two feet tall. And you flip it over and you use it as a as a stool, almost like a very low stool. 
and you do squats where you just you come up and you touch and you go you touch and you go and it's just squats 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 and so you do 50 squats drop down do 50 push-ups roll over do 50 sit-ups run in place and then start doing squats again except this time when you did squats you had to do 100 of them and they kept going and kept going and when i walked in for the tryout there were 24 guys in my tryout class and it was a three-day tryout it spanned the course of a wednesday a thursday and a friday and that first day uh out of 24 guys you had this mix of people that had been like college football players that were pretty good athletes but not quite good enough to go to the pro level and they were big guys that are naturally used to being just looked at and given them whatever opportunity they want and then you had guys that were uh, professional bodybuilders. So they had these great physiques and steroided up and looked great and looked tremendous. And they were looking for ways to make money in the offseason when there weren't competitions going on. And then you had guys that were just your natural raw bone. They're six foot eight just because they were born that way. 400 pounds of haystacks Calhoun with tattoos going up and down their arms and a mohawk. And they're thinking they have the look. And so all of these guys from a different perspective are thinking they're going to show up and they're going to check the boxes. And because they look like a wrestler and they look the part, WCW is going to hire them and they're going to be the next big star. That was their mentality. Everybody wanted to be the next Goldberg. Uh, That was not WCW's mentality. WCW's (laughs) mentality was you called us. We didn't call you. We have plenty of wrestlers on our roster. You asked for an opportunity. Here's your opportunity. And so these guys that were doing these squats, their legs would literally lock up and seize from cramps. They just couldn't go anymore, and they would fall over. And if they fell over, Sarge jumped down in their face like something you would see in special forces training and would say, you called us, we didn't call you. If you can't do it, get out of here. And it became a war of attrition. These guys are just having to leave because they can't go any further. And and they're just giving up. And I'm looking around and I'm realizing now we're back to that. Can you take a punch philosophy? Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm looking at that. and I'm going, Oh, I'm the youngest guy here. I'm probably the smallest guy here, but I've already been through some stuff in my life. I've already faced some adversity. Now, so this is that game. We're going to see who's got some heart, who's willing to fight through it and persevere. Oh, you, you may ask me to leave, but I'm not giving up. I'm not that guy. So while everybody else is dropping like flies, I'm kind of relishing this and then start to embrace it more and more and more because it was hard. Physically the most demanding thing I've ever done. But my mentality by that point was I know the game. The game is who's going to quit and who, who wants it the most. I want it the most. I've got this. This is no problem. So by the end of the first day, there were 16 guys left. The second day, there was eight guys that showed up. And by the third day, me and one other person showed up. Um, yeah. And, and every, by the way, each one of those days was about 10 hours of what I just described. Ooh. And the last day was a half a day. That Friday, you only went to lunchtime. The first two hours was exactly what we've been doing all week, just to make sure one last time that nobody's going to quit, walk out. Then they put us in a wrestling ring and they showed us how to fall on our back. They showed us how to get thrown forward and land on our back. They showed us how to run the ropes, and that was it. They wanted to see if you were athletic enough that you could learn the moves if they taught them to you. 
So after they did that, they brought you into the office. And Jody Hamilton, who I love, man, is so dear to me and such a great guy. He was this older guy, like I said. He'd been the statesman in wrestling now. And he had the presence and the appearance. I've always told people he was the Winston Churchill of professional wrestling. I mean, he just had that aura about him. And he would lean back in his in his chair there in his office and he'd fold his hands over his massive chest and he would take his glasses <laughs> off and he'd go, all right, kid, here's the deal. We're not promising you'll ever have a job. We're not telling you you're a WCW wrestler. We're not saying you'll ever be on TV and we're sure not offering you any kind of a contract today. The only thing we could tell you is you showed us enough out there that's proved to us that we think you can learn how to be a wrestler. And if you want to pay us $3,000, then you can train to be a wrestler. And my mentality was, if I go back to school and university, I'm going to pay for whatever training I'm going to pursue. If I want to be a welder, I've got to pay to learn that vocation and that training. If, if I want to be, no matter what you do in this world, if you're going to get trained in it, you're going to pay somebody something to learn a skill, learn a trade. And if I really truly believe that there's something here, that I've got a natural ability to do this professional wrestling thing, and I think that I can make something out of it, well, there's no bigger company right now in the world than WCW, and there's no better training center, and I want to learn this from the best of the best. So I'll find a way to make it happen. As I told you before, Atlanta was a two-hour drive for me from where I lived. So what I did was this. I had $1,500 in my savings account. I gave WCW $1,500. The other $1,500 I worked off because I could go to CNN Center because Ted Turner owned that as well. And I would move their office furniture around for them and work off my debt. And I would drive from Alabama to Atlanta, two hours there, two hours back home, for 10 hours a day, five days a week, for about 11 months before I finally got a shot. And then I just made the most out of it when I got the opportunity. And, and by the time they gave me some TV matches – I had developed enough of a character in my mind and I'd made sure I knew my, my skills and I made sure I knew how to wrestle and could perform in the ring to such an extent that they didn't realize what they had till after they had it. And it became a thing where it's not like they sit down and said, wow, we're impressed with you. And here you go. And here's your contract. I literally went from being booked once or twice on a few nightly events to where they just gave me an opportunity to go out and get beat, make someone else look good to suddenly every time there's a WCW show, I'm booked on it. And then that led to a contract and then that led to a wrestling career. That's phenomenal. And that's just a, that that's again a testament to your hard work. That is absolutely amazing. But but how did you go from Mark LaRue from Alabama to Lash LaRue from New Orleans? Like was this your ideal? Was this something that you were given to work with? Yeah, uh, 100% my idea but the hybrid went a little something like this. So as I told you guys, man, I grew up here in Alabama. My dad was from Lafayette, Louisiana, but I never knew my dad. So uh, you know, I've got that legitimate Cajun roots that I've never really leaned into because I was never around that culture around those people. Now, with that being said, I think even people that are in the swamps of Louisiana will tell you that when you start talking about the rural South in the United States, there's not much parity there, right? We're all just country people. That's all that we are. And so it wasn't that much of a stretch from a personality standpoint. It's not like I had to learn how to play that character. But the reason why I embraced that was this. 
Uh, when I started wrestling, part of that training is they put a microphone in front of your face, right? Mm. Well, when they put a microphone in front of my face, I was 18 years old and I was from Alabama. And so I talked like I was 18 years old, not from Alabama. I talked about it like this, you know, and that's just the way that I grew up. And that's the way people around here grew up. And that's why they would talk to you. You probably would have even more difficulty understanding me because you have that, that uh, you know, that change in accent there where we go across the water there. So you can imagine how, diff- how how it was, even though here, for someone in New York to listen to someone talk like I talked from Alabama at the time. And so they told me really quick. They said, oh, oh whoa, kid, you can't talk like that on television. You've got to drop the Southern accent because there was a bias there in television at the time that Southern was considered, people equated that with ignorance, right? The old Southern hillbilly sitting on his porch and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so. Yeah. You, know, you can't nobody's going to take you seriously you need to drop the southern accent and i thought man there's no way i could drop the southern accent and i tried i worked on enunciation i worked on my speaking voice i worked on all that stuff and uh and i just couldn't couldn't drop it and then it hit me one day i go you know what you got guys like legends like the american dream dusty Rhodes, who had a little bit of a list well he couldn't get rid of a little bit of his list so since he couldn't get rid of when you talk to dusty in person Dustin talked about like this. I mean, his list, he had a list, but it wasn't that bad. But when he got on TV, baby, he could turn it into a character, if you will. And he used that list to his advantage. And so when he got funky like a monkey, people loved it. And it became part of his charm and his charisma, if you will, baby. And so you had people like Dusty Rhodes that could pull that off. And then you had someone like the Macho Man, that when you're around him in person, the Macho Man is going... Yeah, man, I think we're going to go out there. We're going to have a pretty good match. It's going to be good. So when they turned on the Gene Okerlund lights and a microphone's in front of his face, and the macho man Randy Savage, yeah, baby, and way over the top, and we're going to bring it down here. And then we're going to get loud again, and I may talk about anything. I'm thinking about how this thing might go tonight. And I'm going – so there's this long history of wrestlers just taking whatever it is they've got already and just making it over the top. Well, I had grown up here in Alabama watching public television. We had this thing called uh, public television that even though everything is commercialized in the United States, for some reason, at some point, the government decided they should fund educational television on the local level. And so we had educational television on the local level in Alabama called Alabama Public Television. And that's where you would get some low budget shows that would be on there, you know, on, on the local channels. And there was a guy that was a Cajun chef that looked a lot like, if you guys are, are familiar with Kentucky Fried Chicken, he looked a bit like Colonel Sanders. And he wore like suspenders and a blue shirt and a bow tie, but he was Cajun. And he'd come on there and he'd cook. But half of the show was cooking. The other half was just him being a Cajun storyteller and a little bit of a humorist. And so when he come out, he would go, all right, here we go right now today. We're going to sit down here. I'm going to cook you a little something. Well, we'll have a little wine for the chicken and a little wine for me. This is going to be the best thing you ever put in your mouth. I guarantee. Hey, we're going to let that bon time We'll let the good times roll. And he just had this Cajun sound and this Cajun character. And I thought, man, you know what? I can't hide my Southern accent. But, man, I could really enhance it with a Cajun accent. So I started being the raging Cajun, a last little rule, the little lesson of bon ton roulette. We're going to let the good times roll. I guarantee. And I do that hey, when I got in the ring, you know. And 
and that be and I could throw Mardi Gras beads out when I went. And so when I started doing that, they go, everybody that kind of got wind of that go, yeah, Southern's ignorant, but Cajun is a character. That is something we can work with. That's a character. Now you're talking about Gambit from the X-Men. You're talking about mm. just this mystique and this aura about Cajun people and this Cajun culture. And there's so many different directions you can go with that. Well, with the name as well, when I first started wrestling, my first opportunities with WCW was they would do these TV tapings down in Orlando, uh, Florida, the Orlando Studios. And so you would do three months worth of tapings in about a week for their syndicated shows back there. And the word was out with guys that were trainees that you could take your gear, drive down there on your own dime and kind of hang out in the studios and let them know, hey, I'm from the WCW power plant. And if you need someone to just get beat or if you're looking for some extra talent, you know, I've got my gear with me and I'm ready to wrestle. And you had the the uh, rub of being from the power plant. So they knew that you could be a good enough talent to have a good match. But you're a nobody at that point. So they can beat you and just squash you and make the their, whatever talent look really good on a Saturday night show. So my very first match out, you know, what's your name? Mark LaRue. So they put Mark LaRue on there. I went and introduced myself to a guy that was the booker at the time. His name was Terry Taylor. And Terry wow. Taylor, yeah, yeah, Terry's a great guy. The Red Rooster from the Red Rooster. Right? <laughs> yeah, Terry is kind of known for, he's a great guy, super nice guy, but you have to know how to take him because he's an extremely sarcastic person. That's his humor. That's his wit. And he doesn't mean it in a malicious way, but he's one of those kind of cats that if you don't know how to take it, then it can come off as he's just ripping you apart, right? But that's just him. And I went up to him to introduce myself to him. I'm Mr. Taylor. I just want to introduce myself. My name is Mark. And he looked at me and said, I'm sure you are, kid. And I bet you guys know that Mark is a euphemism for a fan, right? And, yeah. and so he didn't even shake my hand. He just kept walking. And immediately a light bulb went off. I'm not the smartest guy, but I went, okay, I don't have to be high IQ to know the name Mark probably will not work very well in wrestling as far as engendering confidence as a character. <laughs> and uh, at that same time, uh, I'd always been called Lash LaRue growing up and where that name comes from. And I, I don't know if you guys have ever run across it in pop, in pop culture, but it's been ingrained in pop culture in the United States for many years because in the very early years of film here in the United States of Hollywood, when you had these cowboy films of guys like Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and these Westerns that really kind of started the whole ball rolling on movies, that was in the cowboy life was an easy life to depict early on, right? In Westerns in film. And so there was this cowboy character named Lash LaRue. He just spelled his last name different. It was L-A-R-U-E. And my name is legitimately L-E, R-O-U-X, is the Cajun spelling. And, uh, but Lash LaRue, the old cowboy, would carry a bull whip, and he would carry a uh, – he wore all black, black hat, everything, at a time when good guys didn't wear black. They only wore white. So he stood out, and he was different, and he was kind of an edgy character. And that's allowed him to kind of stand the test of time from a pop culture reference standpoint. But like a lot of things, man, as time goes on – you would have had to been somebody in the nineties. You would, and even in the 1990s, you'd have to be someone that was a senior citizen to remember what it was like growing up watching Lash LaRue, but everybody recognized the name. So there, because of that, Jody Hamilton would call me Lash LaRue all the time. People, when I was growing up, older people would hear the last name LaRue and they just automatically call you Lash. 
So it was kind of a nickname anyway. And uh, Jody Hamilton called me into his office and sat back in his, again, Winston Churchill way and folded his hands over and goes, hey, kid, you really think you might wrestle as Lash LaRue, you know, instead of Mark LaRue? And I go, yeah, I think I probably will. I mean, there's certainly going to be a more marketable name than Mark LaRue would be. And he said, if I were you, I would go to the local probate office and see the probate judge in your hometown and just legally add Lash to your name. Don't change your name. Don't make it different. Well, the process here to make it make sense, and I, I don't I, I don't want to assume that it would be the same for you guys over there, but the way the laws play out here, the process here, if a woman marries a, uh, a guy, right, and they wants to take his last name, it's a pretty simple, easy formality. You go down to the probate office, and when you get your marriage license, you can fill out a form, and you can change your last name from whatever it was before. So, so Jacqueline Smith can become Jacqueline Bouvier if she's married somebody named Bouvier and she wants to change her last name so that they share the same last name, right? So that's the process here in the United States. The process is the same. It's just a matter of whether or not you convince a judge that, you know, you should change your name and you don't have any kind of malicious intent. You're not trying to run from anything or nothing like that. You just have your own reasons why you want to. Most there's even been times where like Prince famously in the late nineties, early two thousands, if you remember, changed his name legally from whatever his name was to that symbol. So it's not that big of a deal. And it's certainly not that big of a deal if you're a nobody like I was at the time. And so I just talked to a local friend that was a lawyer. I was like 18 years old. And he goes, yeah, that's, that's probably going to work. And Jody Hamilton's advice to me, by the way, was this. If I changed my name to that or added it to my name legally, then I don't have to worry about copyrights. I don't have to worry about trademarks running out. I don't have to worry about Vince McMahon coming up with it as a character himself, copywriting it, and then telling me I can't ever wrestle anywhere else as Lash LaRue unless I'm wrestling for you know, I'm not in that same situation as someone like The Undertaker would be in, for instance, where that is a WWE product. So, long story short, I go down, um, talk to the probate office, fill out one form, pay 25 bucks, and legally add Lash to my name so that my name from the time I've been 18 years old was Jonathan Mark Lash LaRue. And fast forward, it was never an issue in WCW. Uh, WCW, I signed my contract as Lash LaRue. When WWE bought out the company and I signed with WWE, their first contract that they sent to me said that they owned the rights to Lash LaRue. And so I called them up and I said, I've got no issue with any other aspect of this contract other than the fact that Lash LaRue is my name. How do you own the rights to it? They go, oh, we assume that's a character WCW came up with. And when we bought them, we bought all their intellectual property. I go, no, it's my actual name. By then, it had been for like eight years. I sent them a copy of my driver's license. They go, yeah, sure, no problem. And they changed the contract and it's my name. So Lash LaRue has legally been my name since I was 18. And it just depends on whether it's someone uh, really in my personal life from the time I was a child, like people at church, for instance, will refer to me as Mark, but then professionally, because look, I'll play off the branding. And when I go and do caricatures, I'm Lash LaRue. Uh, even to a lot of friends will still call me Lash LaRue because they're more comfortable with that. And for me personally, I don't wear it on my sleeve one way or the other, guys. You probably tell in this conversation, I've got no arrogance or ego about it at all, man. People can call me Mark. They can call me Lash. 
Either one, I'm just happy they remember me. The, the one thing that I definitely remember from the days of WCW. Now, there has been many great wrestling groups and factions. DX, NWO, there's now the Bloodline, Dungeon of Doom. But none of these have anything on general huge erection. G.I. Bro, Major Stash, <laughs> Lieutenant Loco, Sage and Owol, Major Guns, and of course, Corporal Cajun. God, I love the 90s. Misfits in action. Tell us all about this group. How did this happen? Because it is just phenomenal. Like, How was this pitched to you? Well, this was actually a Vince Russo product. Oh, what a show. (laughs) And when Russo came in with Ed Ferreira, uh, Russo was very high on young talent that he thought thought well of and guys that he thought maybe had not been given the best opportunity. And to his credit, he called us in, you know, and I'll, I'll forever be grateful for this. He literally called us in as a bunch of misfits into an office setting. We sat down at a table and all sat down together. The guys, the people that you just mentioned, and it was at the time then, it was Van Hammer, Chavo Guerrero, Hugh Morris, Lash LaRue, and Booker T all sitting together to which uh, Vince Russo said, look, guys, bro, bro, look, guys, guys, here's the thing. We've only got so much time on TV, and I think all you guys are extremely talented. Bro, bro, (laughs) I can send you home and you not be used at all, or I can put all of you together in this one group and, you know, basically call us Misfits. It was his idea to call it the Misfits in Action MIA. It was his idea to say that the purpose of us was to give us some TV time and give a lot of talented guys TV time all at one time. So you kind of consolidate that, right? And then while at the same time, every show, if it's going to be a well-balanced wrestling show, needs a little bit of comic relief in there somewhere, right? And uh, British wrestling has a great history of comic wrestlers, right? Comedic wrestlers. And so in the same way and in the same vein, he said, look, you guys go home. If you haven't ever watched the movie Stripes, watch the movie Stripes with Bill Murray and John Candy and those guys. You're basically going to be the comic relief of WCW. We're going to make you a military faction. And um, that was pretty much the extent of the input. And they gave us the names. Hugh Morris hated his name, by the way, for obvious reasons. But, you know, (laughs) it was just such such a fifth grade joke, right? It was such a juvenile joke. But, uh, what I, what I take the most pride of in that is there's a perfect example, especially for young wrestlers that are coming along and they think that they've been handed something that they may think is crap. Now, for me personally, I was just happy to be on TV. As long as I could stay booked, I always felt like, give me an opportunity, put me in front of people, and I'm going to sell myself one way or the other, right? But uh, for young people that may feel like they're not handed the best material, figure out how can I make this my own and how can I leverage this in a way that I can make it popular, you know, in spite of itself. And for instance, with us, they said, look, we're going to send some some production people to the local army surplus store, and we're going to buy colored camouflage. We want you guys to wear this new urban camouflage, and we want you to all kind of look the same so you look like a group. And my question immediately was, okay, I'm Corporal Cajun. You're playing off the Cajun thing still. So does it matter how I wear this camouflage as long as I'm still wearing the camouflage? Bro, I don't care what you do with it. Make it your own. I said, okay. Once they gave me the green light on that, I took two different pairs 
in two different colors and took them to the seamstress and said, split them up the middle, take one leg and sew it to the other, kind of a court gesture kind of way. So I wore my pants that way where they were two different colored uh, of camouflage. I just had them specially made. Then I took my wrestling boots, my traditional wrestling boots. Instead of lacing them all the way up, I laced them halfway up and I folded them down over the tops of it so they'd look like World War II jump boots. I wore gloves because military guys like to wear gloves. Made it feel like right. And then, you know, I still wore my Mardi Gras beads and I took the bucket hats that became really popular during Desert Storm and I cut a hole in the top of it and pulled my hair through the top. You know, if you want me to be over the top, I could be over the top. I could be goofy. I could be fun. I could be the comic relief. And so we kind of knew our role. But here's the thing. No matter what kind of court gesture comedy fodder you might be, at some point they're going to put you in the ring and the bell's going to ring. How do you perform once that happens? And so the three of us, especially between myself, Hugh Morris, and uh, Chavo, we took great pride in our wrestling ability. And I think the fact that Hugh became the, the uh, United States champion and uh, AWOL became the hardcore champion and Chavo and I became the tag team champions, that's a testament to the fact that we got over and got popular with the fans despite – uh, whether or not we were, we were meant to be a sort of a joke. And uh, and we were able to take that thing to the next level based on our talent. So I'm incredibly proud of the impact that we were able to make with something that should have been just a couple of episodes of a throwaway group. Absolutely. And and that group has helped build up the main storyline because memory says it was the New Blood and the Millionaires Club. And yeah. you've got you guys in the middle, and it sort of helps build them up as well. So it was so essential to that storyline as well. Yeah, which is always fun to me, too, because, uh, again, the New Blood, if you go back and you look at that group of guys that came out there, most of them came out of the power plant. And they came out of the power plant after I did. But I started so early in my career that it's, it's funny. Most fans don't even realize this now. Is I was like 18 when I signed with WCW. I was the youngest guy they had on a contract. And a lot of these guys that came through the power plant after me, even though they didn't have the experience that I had, they'd be eight to 10 years older than I was. And so somehow I always got saddled with being older and more mature than I really was. So that even with the Millionaires Club, they sided us more often with the Millionaires Club. And they put me with the veterans and all these young guys that were older than me coming out of the power plant, they put in the new blood, you know. And I've always found that humorous that I've kind of taken – my my uh my career took that bent. So same thing when I retired. I retired at such a young age that people don't realize that even now I'm the same age as AJ Styles. You know, uh, I'm not. I'm about the same age as John Cena. I'm way younger than Dave Batista. All these guys that came after me are older than even I was, or about the same age. Edge and Christian older than me. Hardy Boys older than me. You know. That's that great. is absolutely yeah. that is nuts. It's, it's, yeah. it's funny because you don't you don't think about it though, really, do you? Like age never seems to be like I'm not sat there going, how old are they? Why are they so why are they over there? Why are they not doing this instead? It's it's absolutely nuts. Yeah, so so I retired at such a young age, man. I retired by the time I was 30, 32 years old, something like that. And so you know, you be out of the business, next thing you know, you turn around and you've been retired for 13 years. And there's guys that are still out there and have never left wrestling that are older than you are. And you go, oh, okay. So yes. that kind of led to me having my match that I had a month and a half ago for GCW in Chicago. So 
just just very very quickly before we jump on that your finisher the the, the Samoan driver thing that you did how how do you come up with the finishing move because obviously it it must with this I, I don't I don't know I'm just I'm just curious to know how finishing moves come about how you know that's going to make more of an impact than you know others yeah I, I totally I totally created it and I became the guy at the WCW Power Plant that was kind of known for coming up with creative moves and inventing things. And uh, a lot of that was because I had that amateur wrestling background and I'm a creative type at the same time. So every professional wrestling move in some form or another is based on a legitimate move, right? And so I had that legitimate background and I could say, well, how can I turn that into something entertaining and something that has some impact to it? So my finishing move, the whiplash that I came up with, basically was me seeing that I could pick people up in a fireman's carry. And once I've got you up here, now I've got complete control. And I need something I can do on pretty much everybody. I've got strong legs for my size. So I, it's not that hard for me to squat somebody up. And then once I jump and I spin and bring them down, I pull their head in. Their legs are going that way. Physics is going to do the work for me. And boom, it's going to have a nice impact to it. The same was true. I can remember being at the power plant famously one day. And uh, Wrath came in, who went on to be a part of Chronic, who was Adam Bomb in WWE. That was it, yeah. So Brian Clark, yeah, Brian Clark came in, and they were looking for a new finisher for him. And uh, same thing as I said, let's talk through some things. So what's some stuff? I would start with moves that maybe you don't see too often anymore. And one move that I always thought was cool, but lost its impact because there were more impactful moves that came along that made it look small in comparison was the pump handle suplex. But I always thought a pump handle suplex had a unique look to it, right? It's like you hook that guy up, like you're putting them almost in a nominal stretch or something, and you've got their hand, and you pull them out and you suplex them, right? Just an easy flip, right? Well, I told I told Rath, I said, as tall as you are, because the first idea I had was maybe something with the pump handle suplex. The other idea that I had with Rath was, I always thought a great impact finish that nobody really uses anymore was when British Bulldog would do that running power slam. And it's an easy bump. You just put the guy up on your shoulder, you run with him, and you just drive him right down, right? Great look to it. Well, Rath was so – Brian was so athletic for his size, and here's a really tall guy. So when you bring somebody up that high, it looks more impactful already anyway. I said, what if you spin that guy like a pump handle suplex, but when you get him to your shoulder, just turn him and set him on your shoulder, then quick release with that power slam and you could hit him with that right boom so they did that i think they called it the meltdown or something like that and that became his finishing move and about two weeks later i think edge or somebody started using it and it you know after they saw it on tv so that's one of those moves that i uniquely totally created myself and and i don't give myself a lot of credit for that sort of stuff because i don't like to to brag on myself or toot my own horn but I, you know i, I think i I think that it was Sherlock Holmes that had that famous quote, right? Where he said to, he said to, uh, to diminish one's truth as to over-exaggerate them. So it's the same type of mentality there is as I get older, I don't mind sharing those types of things, but I would do that. You know, Diamond Dallas Page would come down there a great deal. We're always looking for unique ways to get to the diamond cutter. You know, I was that guy that would come up with those moves and, I was always trying to put something in a match that would be unique and different. I did a couple of different power bombs and suplexes, you know, took a Northern Lights suplex as a matter of fact. And there's a few matches you can see on YouTube where I do this. And I would go like I'm giving a guy a traditional Northern Lights suplex, 
which is a belly to belly with a bridge and you land in the bridge. Mm. Well, I said, well, what if I just jump and flip with the guy? So that instead of me landing in a bridge, I would go to give the guy the belly to belly suplex and I would spin in the air and go with him so that I would land chest to chest. Oh. And just... Yeah, so I did that a lot. And then uh, they came to me at some point and they said they didn't like the whiplash because they thought that it wasn't believable when I started wrestling heavyweights that were bigger than me for me to pick them up and to turn them like that, slam them. And they want me to come up with something a little quicker and a little bit more of a finesse move. So my best friend in professional wrestling was Brad Armstrong. He was my travel buddy. Uh, uh, love Brad Armstrong. and love all the Armstrongs. Just iconic and legendary. Tremendous family. They don't get enough credit. They should get more flowers than they do in the rest of the community, in my opinion. But uh, anyway, Brad's finishing move was always that Russian leg sweep with the float over that I yeah. thought was just just gorgeous when it's done well and it's smooth. And uh, he he was not wrestling actively anymore in WCW at the time. And they came to me about 2000 and wanted me to come up with a new finishing move. So what I started doing was I was doing a lot of English style at the time as well. I tried to incorporate some of that. So that instead of just grabbing a headlock, because everybody grabbed a headlock, I'd grab a cravat. You know, and I, I'd put him in that. And, and a lot of that was influenced by Dave Taylor, who was a good friend of mine at the time. You know, a British legend. Man, what a great wrestler. He and I actually wound up being tag team uh, partners together with the WC, with the WWE's training ground up there at HWA for a while. And that was a lot of fun. Love being around Dave. Uh, we did a German tour together in the mid-2000s. But anyway, so I did a cravat. Instead of doing the Russian leg sweep where I just – grab or drape my arm over his head and grab it and do the Russian leg sweep. I would put the guy in a cravat first, do the Russian leg sweep and then float over on top of that. You know? Mm. So it's always just thinking, how can I take something that is a safe, unique move already and make it more defined and unique and make it my own by just putting a small twist on it. Absolutely. I'm always fascinated by how, how, you know, you come up with like moves and stuff, especially as we move on now into like this sort of day and age where it's like, it's almost more difficult to come up with stuff now because so much has been done uh, in the past and whatnot. Absolutely. You're 100% right on that. And something else that gets lost in the shuffle, by the way, and I think that this bears mentioning because it's a great story and it's also very true. And I also think that people can learn from this now in the wrestling business. And, and that is, you have to do something that gives the fans an opportunity to react to it as well. And if you do a high impact move just to go into another high impact move, then what are the fans really going to react to? Or if you do a high impact move and it's unique, but the bump is not any more impressive than the 47 other bumps that you took leading up to that, then why would the fans react to it in any way whatsoever? And I've learned this lesson well one day. We're all in the power plant. And we're in a ring together. And we're just working around together and trying to get better. And anytime somebody that was a star and a legitimate bona fide name came down to power play, you wanted the opportunity to learn from them and be in the ring with them. And so it was me and Chris Canyon and, and uh, yeah, yeah, Disco Inferno was in there. Some other guys from the power plant and, and Diamond Dallas Page had come down there who was always coming down there and trying to polish up his craft more and more and more. And I was guilty of just trying to be the class clown sometimes. Like I was a hard worker and I'm also going to play hard. Now I want us to have fun while we're doing this. Right. And so while there was a pause there, I looked over at Paige and I said, Hey, Dally, this is what I'm going to start doing when I have my matches. And I was just trying to make him laugh 
That's all I was trying to do in this moment. I wanted to pop him and, and get a reaction from him. And uh, at that time, you had The Rock, obviously, doing the people's elbow. And you you had uh, Road Dog, who was another Armstrong, by the way. Yes. I just love, doing the shimmy shake and dropping the knee on people. You know, and that's entertaining. And then you had, it was very entertaining as well, you had Scotty Too Hotty would do the worm and pop up and do the boom, drop the elbow. And, and I was recognizing and realizing the fans were reacting to that stuff, right? They would go crazy for it because you gave them an opportunity to stop, be entertained, enjoy this, and it's a nice little change up in the match. So I looked at Dallas, and I was being just funny. I wasn't being serious when I said this. But I said, Dallas, this is what I'm going to start doing in the match because all these guys are doing these other ha-ha little moves and these little fun moves and entertaining moves. I'm going to punch the guy. I'm going to jab him three times. Then I'm going to dance like James Brown. I'm going to do the splits. I'm going to pop up and I'm going to clothesline. So I did that while I'm telling him about it. And I didn't hit somebody with it. And he saw me do the splits and pop back and goes, bro, you got to do that every match. And I went, what, really? And he goes, yeah, yes, do that every single match. And that became like a signature move for me. And probably the best reaction I would get in a match would be when I would do that Bourbon Street Blues is what I wound up calling it, you know, because it had the dancing in it and the whole deal. And it was a nice change up in a match to transition from one point to the other to give the fans a break from all the big high impact falls and just give them a chance to be entertained for a second, catch their breath before you go into the next thing. And it was popular enough. Actually, it wasn't long after I started doing that, that Ernest Miller came out and started doing the I am the greatest James Brown stick. Because it was entertaining. And that, again, that's one of those things. Do I look at that like like the cat stole my splits and turned it into a whole gimmick and took it? No. I mean, I'm doing what I'm doing is different from that. And to me, that's like saying that Ric Flair or Dusty Rhodes are stealing one another's figure four leg lock back in the 80s. No, man, they just did it different ways. And they're different personalities. Their presentation is going to be slightly different. There's enough room for all of that professional wrestling. And, and so – I take pride in the fact that it was enough of a move that meant it helped us both. Absolutely. Just just think that, as Tom was saying earlier, there isn't really much originality you can have. You can put so many different variations. Like you were saying there, that thing you came up with. You think back to Dusty in the 80s. Boom. Exactly. It's just another variation of that. 100%. 100%. So the, the, the truth the truth is, is I think when it comes to most anything in life, at this point in history, what hasn't been done is some capacity, right? You can sit there and pick something apart and you could say, are right, you guys are just another podcast? No, you are a podcast that brings a different spin to it, a different slant. And on top of all of that, even if you tried to copy somebody else 100%, whether it's in wrestling or whether it's in art, or anything else, I've got great influences when it comes to my caricature work. But I could try to draw just like somebody else. And just because of the small nuances and the variations of my own personality, it's not going to look just like they're drawing when I'm done. And so it evolves into my own style. Same thing I can go out and try to have. Hey, for that matter, look at this. The more people look back in history of professional wrestling, and I don't know if you guys would even know this guy or not, but there was a guy that became pretty popular they gets a lot of credit now, and he should. He was a great wrestler, and he was Nature Boy Buddy Landell. And even at one name. point, do you remember the name? Okay, well, even at one point in the late 80s, early 90s, 
he was a good enough wrestler and was so good that they tried to actually bring him into the NWA and WCW and put him against Flair and have this battle of the nature boy thing, right? And and it didn't work out only because he had a lot of demons and he had a lot of struggles and he had some difficulties like, like a lot of wrestlers do. But it wasn't because he wasn't a great talent, a great wrestler. And he could try to rip off the nature boy 100%, but he still came off as Buddy Landell. And he had the robes. He had the struts. They had the same haircut, but they were just different people. And really, the nature boy, Ric Flair, for all of his legendary status, and he deserves every bit of it. There's nobody that he's not going to be one of the three wrestlers you mentioned off the top of your head if you ask the average person about professional wrestling. Go, hey, can you name me professional wrestlers? And they're just casual fans. They're probably going to say Hulk Hogan, The Rock, and, and Ric Flair or something like that, right? Yep. Well, Ric Flair was not the original Nature Boy. Yep. Matter of fact, here's a great story I got from Dusty himself. So it's an absolutely true story. Dusty was sitting there talking to us one day before an event when I was wrestling for TNA. And uh, he was telling a story about Ric Flair. He goes, I can tell you about Ric Flair, baby. And he, he told this story about how when, when he would come up from Florida, Dusty became a little bit of a star before Flair did. And Dusty became a star pretty young regionally when it came to, uh, you know, Florida and all that area. And they sent him up, I think Minnesota or someplace like that. And the way Dusty told the story was when he came to this other territory up there, you know, they would get other local talent to drive around the wrestlers and help host them so that they could travel freely while they're there. And so he was riding with Rick Flair. And Flair at the time had a day job. He wasn't wrestling full time. And he looked at Dusty and Dusty said that he told him the story that he goes, uh, you know, uh, hey, big dust. You know, I'm thinking about taking a year off from my regular job and just putting all of my emphasis and all of my uh, all of my energy into professional wrestling and seeing if I can really make this. And if you look at old pictures of Flair, Flair before the plane crash, man, looked like an offensive lineman in the NFL. I mean, he was yeah. just boom. He was like a powerlifter physique. His hair was short and cropped. You know, he had kind of an Uncle Fester look to him. And so he goes, <laughs> uh, yeah, he said, he said, I'm thinking about doing this and trying it out. He goes, but I realized for me to be a big star in this wrestling business, I need a better gimmick. So I'm thinking of growing my hair out, dyeing it blonde and getting a perm and calling myself Rambling Ricky Rhodes. What do you think about that? And Dusty said, nah, baby, I really think you should do your own thing, you know. And all of a sudden, you look at a story like that, and you go, okay, what if Ric Flair had just said, well, you know, the hell with it. I'm going to be rambling Ricky Rhodes. I'm going to get the perm. And then whether Dusty likes it or not, I'm going to kind of trade off of his name and 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 kind of get, get that rub. He would have never been the legend that he is now, you know. But even still, with him being the legend that he is now and making the nature boy Ric Flair his own thing, and becoming the greatest, he is the greatest nature boy of all time, but he's not the first nature boy in professional wrestling. Nope. So to, to your point, man, it's all been done at some point or another. You take it, great people are able to not necessarily steal, they borrow the general ideas and then they build off of it. How can I uniquely turn it into my own? Absolutely. Like you've got so many comparisons at the moment, like you said. Like to speak of current things, um, there's a current wrestler of WWE, Solo Sokoa, so right. much like his uncle Umaga, so but so, but they're two very different people. 
But That's you right. can see he's borrowing from that family lineage, and no one's forgetting Umaga, but no one's forgetting Solo either. It's you know, it's it's paying tribute. It's it's just what it is. It's paying tribute at the end of the day. One hundred percent. And look, really, when it comes down to it, how will you know if it works or not? Because it will stand the test of time. If it doesn't stand the test of time, then it's a cheap imitation. If it stands the test of time, then it's genuinely you and you've just borrowed some pieces from other people. Uh, Another example of that, for instance, for me personally, if you're talking about my career, is I get stopped all the time. And one of the things fans remember about me that that are kind enough to remember my career is the sideburns. I was kind of for having these legendary sideburns. Well, the way that those came about was this. I stole those from Elvis Presley. The reason why I stole those from Elvis Presley is when I started wrestling, I had gone through all that stuff that I told you that I'd gone through in high school. I was a super young kid because I played sports in high school. I always kept my hair about as short as your hair is hair is right now. And the very first thing they told me was, you look like that kid from the movie Rudy. You just look like a little kid. You look young. You, you need to grow some facial hair so you'll look older because you're only 18. You need to grow your hair out. That'll make you look even older, make you look more like a wrestler. So do that. Well, when I began growing my hair out, all I would do is start curling up. I had no idea it was just curly until I started growing it out. And this is all that it will do. So I let it do its own thing, and it was kind of unique. But then as far as facial hair went, I go, okay, what do I go with? I didn't want to go with a beard. I just did. That didn't appeal to me for whatever reason. I didn't want to go with a goatee because everybody had a goatee in the 90s, right? And then I thought, well, if I, if I grew out my sideburns and kind of grew them down, um, would that even be noticeable? Would that make a difference? But I'm a big Elvis fan. I've always been an admirer of his. And I looked at some of these pictures of Elvis. I thought, well, his sideburns are kind of cool. What if I just grow that pork chop Elvis sideburns? So I did that first and just grew these huge sideburns. And then one day I was looking in the mirror and I went to shave and I thought, you know what? The artist in me came out and I went, I bet I can shake those into L-shaped sideburns. I literally, the first time I did it, I took a ruler and I took my wife's (laughs) eyeliner makeup pencil and I drew them in. And once I shaped them and shaved them in the first time and made them look like an L, I go, yeah, that'll work. That'll work. Then I never, it wasn't that difficult to keep them up. I just shaved around them all the time. And then I grew the soul patch to kind of balance it all out, you know, just because I thought it it felt like it needed something. And it made for a different look for me, for something iconic. But you could make the argument that it started with the genesis of me just ripping off Elvis because I thought it was a cool look. And then I thought, well, how can I make it my own and take it even the next level? Absolutely. And and genuinely, I, I don't mean this. And it's, uh, that is one thing I remember most about you from my childhood watching you is <laughs> that tour with the, the figure down the sideburns. It, you know, it stands out. It, it makes you, you though, those part of a character. Well, I appreciate that very much. If you don't mind, I'll share a couple of stories with you really quick. And one has a, has a strong moral to it. So that's kind of been the, the theme of this podcast for us. But, uh, you know, the first is just fun, quick little antidote to that is um, when I did this pay-per-view about a month and a half ago, which was my first time in the ring in the last 13 years, obviously I don't have the sideburns, but I paid homage to them enough that when I came out and I saw the, the camera, I went, oh, there it is, right there, right there. Many <laughs> people would remember the sideburns. And then the other thing that I think is incredibly important, people should remember this, especially 
if they're young wrestlers and they're coming up in the business, you know what? If you're anybody coming up in any business, um, wrestlers can very quickly be in a bubble. And because you're on the road so much and you're used to people giving you your accolades and recognizing you from TV and treating you like a quote unquote superstar, you can start acting like a superstar if you're not careful. And I always try not to be that person. I wanted to be nice to everybody. Right. And especially people that I just got on with really well. And so they're, they, I, and you can be the crew guy and I'm going to stop and talk to you as long as I'm going to stop and talk to Buff Bagwell, you know, in the hallway going through the, to, to cater. And uh, there was one particular guy that I would talk to like this. It's an older gentleman that worked the camera there in WCW. I didn't even really know what he did. I just knew he was on the crew. And, you know, I'd talk to him and we'd have conversation every now and then. And sometimes after the shows, I'd see him at the bar and have a beer with him. And we'd talk a little bit then. It was just such a genuinely nice guy that we hit it off. And one of my travel companions at the time was, uh, was Nick Patrick because of that WCW uh, power plant connection there. And Nick and I traveled together a great deal. And he and Nick were good friends from way back when. And so I got along with this guy really, really, really well. And he stopped me one day and he goes, he goes, Hey, I don't know if you know this or not kid, but you know, I'm the one that's working that handheld camera when you're coming down the ramp to the ring. He said, you want everybody to recognize those are L shaped sideburns and you kind of point to them when you come out. He said, how about when you come down that ramp, as you're coming down the ramp, do that, and I'll do the rest. And it became this thing where we worked together almost like a dance. As I'm coming down the ring and I'm looking at the camera, I would do this, and he would put the camera right in my face, and I'd spin off from it. you know. And we always played. And I knew to look for him, and he knew to look for me. And it turned out that not only did that benefit me greatly, because he helped me out so much and it made an impression to wrestling fans. But also that cameraman wound up being Jackie Crockett. He's one of the Crockett brothers that owned the NWA. And when they sold it off to Ted Turner, he stayed on because he liked the wrestling business so much. He didn't have to work. He just liked working the camera. And he was such a great guy. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. So, absolutely. <laughs> you never know who you're talking to, man. You never know who you're talking to. So the good rule of thumb is I always treat people with the same level of respect that they treat me. And I want to be as genuinely good to them as they are to me. Because, yeah, you never know who you're talking to anyway. But at the same time, you also look at the fact that when you're interacting with these people, they don't know if they're the first person to bother you on a day or if they're the 500th person to come up and ask for an autograph. So, you know, Brad Armstrong used to always say you treat each person like they're the very first person to ask you for an autograph that day. And, you know, in the same vein, Bobby Eaton, beautiful Bobby Eaton used to look at me and he go, Flash, Flash, I'm going to tell you, it don't, it don't cost you a dime to be nice to people. Not a dime. And he's absolutely right. What does it cost you? And you never know what the benefit's going to be on the other side. Absolutely. Oh, phenomenal. Just fast forwarding through, obviously, two we all know the story, 2001, WWF wins the war. They buy out WCW. But they sent you to developmental. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was not the plan. And that was not the expectation either. And so yeah. that's, yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess to be able to elaborate on that for you a little bit, expound on it. When WC, w, WCW was bought out by WWE, it just so happened in the buildup to that, I was sitting at home, and the reason why I was sitting at home is the MIA had played itself out. WCW was so convinced that Eric Bischoff was going to purchase it with some other uh, business partners 
that yeah. Eric was hanging out backstage at the shows, and most people were taking his orders because they're thinking this guy's going to be the next boss. So they're going to start taking his orders again, too. The last match I had in WCW was against Rick Steiner. And one of the things that Eric wanted to accomplish was he had felt that Vince had diminished some of these big stars at the expense of the younger stars when he came in and started taking someone like a Rick Steiner and putting him with Tank Abbott and having them dance and act goofy to try to give them personality or whatever. He felt he had taken that aura of a monster that you don't mess with, with the dog face gremlin away from it. At the same time, uh, he wanted to make him look strong. They were deciding what they're going to do with me next. And uh, we were at a Thundertaking. As a matter of fact, I think it was in Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, I knew I was wrestling Rick that night. And knew we were going to have a match. And I knew he was going to beat me. And as Eric is walking past me in the hallway backstage, he looks at me and he goes, cut your hair. It looks goofy. And just keeps walking. And I thought, well, that's kind of harsh and random. <laughs> You know what? Yeah, yeah. And it, to his credit, he goes back to me about an hour later, and he goes, "He goes, hey, I didn't mean for that to come off the way that it came off." He goes, "Look, here's what we're thinking. We want we want Rick to look like a star, uh, to look like a big monster again, superstar, and we want to give you a reason to go home for about four weeks. We'd like to give you a different look from the MIA, get you to cut your hair, look slightly different. I wasn't crazy about the cutting the hair thing because I thought that was unique to me." And at that time, all the guys coming out of the power plant had that same haircut. Yeah. But, you know, either way, I was going to do whatever they asked me to do. So it's a shirt. He goes, and I got a little pudgy from the Misfits and Action. I got to wear a shirt on TV. So I didn't have to be lean, you know. And he said, you know, lose a little bit of weight, lean up, come back strictly as a cruiserweight. We'll put the cruiserweight title on you and give you a little bit of a run with it. While at the same time, we'll give you a reason to go home for four weeks by having – Rick Steiner just annihilates you, and that makes him look strong as well. And so we went out and had our match. Rick Steiner beats me down. He does the whole deal where he gives me a couple of those Death Valley drivers, and I'm holding my ribs and selling that. And they put me in an ambulance even and drive me off. And so I go home, and I'm leaning down. I've cut my hair. I've been home for about three weeks. And then I watch it live like everybody else does because they kept it secretive even among the guys that wrestled for WCW. And then you see that the company's been sold and WWE's bought it. Well, I get a call about two weeks after that while you're in limbo wondering what's next. And Johnny Ace, who was the guy that was working with WCW at the time, that now that WWE purchased him, they went to Johnny to be kind of the, the talent liaison between the WCW guys and WWE office. So Johnny was the one that called me up and he goes, Hey, Lash. I go, yeah, John. He goes, I got good news and I got bad news, kid. I go, give me the bad news. I'm a bad news first guy, Johnny. Just let me know that. Let me have that. He goes, the bad news is Vince is only interested in 24 guys from WCW. Okay, that's well enough. Uh, what's the good news? Well, the good news is you're one of them. All right, Johnny, that's great. Wonderful. What do I need to do? Nothing right now. Just sit tight. We'll call you in a couple of weeks. Uh, okay. They call me in a couple of weeks. And uh, and I asked them about the contract, everything else. They said, no, WWE was just going to assume my WCW contract. being no big deal at all. I'm trying to figure out how they want to move forward on it. And then about a week after that, my contract is about to roll over to my last WCW year. And I'm about to get a substantial pay increase. And so he calls me up the Friday before the Monday, and that's going to roll over. He goes, 
Hey, Lash, uh, Vince has decided he wants you to sign a WWE contract. Okay, no problem. What does that mean? He goes, well, and the way the contracts were structured, WCW versus WWE, WCW got a far more guaranteed deal, but you didn't get the residuals and the draws off of each shows like you do in WWE. Mm-hmm. So at WCW, you can't make it for the year. And the only time that varied was off of merchandising. You didn't get anything like that. Well, in WWE, you got extra for all those shows that you worked. And obviously, there's residuals for pay-per-views and royalties for that sort of thing. So they, he told me, he goes, look, we want you to take a huge pay cut, and it's going to look dramatic. But, man, you're a workhorse in WCW. And if you work for us at the same level that you worked in WCW, you're going to make more money at the end of the year anyway. And my mentality was, look, if I'm paying my bills and I'm living a comfortable lifestyle, I really don't care that much about the numbers. You know, as long as I'm doing good business, I'm, I'm living a dream. What's the big deal? So I go, sure, no problem. Send it over. So I took a $150,000 pay cut. Took a $150,000 pay cut to go to WWE. And then I asked them, I said, what's the plan? What's next? They said, sit tight. We'll call you in a week. They called me in a week. He said, uh, hey, Lash. Yeah. Vince loves the Raging Cajun gimmick. He likes to get, you know, here's the deal. Though they want you to go to Cincinnati where they have a training center and help train some of those guys. You'll be up there for about four weeks until they figure out a way to write you in the TV. Okay, no problem at all. Uh, when do I leave? We need you to be there by Monday. Okay. So I go, you guys going to send me a ticket? What's the deal? Because the rule of thumb in wrestling was, Anything over 300 miles, they fly you. Anything under 300 miles, you drive. Yeah. Well, it's well over. It was like 500 miles if it's Cincinnati. And, uh, but Johnny, again, he goes, you probably want to drive yourself up there. You save more money in the long run. You don't have to worry about a rental car, the whole deal. Whatever. No big deal. I'll drive up there. I go up there, and once I get up there, and I've been there for about a week and a half, I do marry a week and a half longer. I'm there for four weeks. Four weeks turns into six weeks. Six weeks turns into eight weeks. Eight weeks turns into three months. Three months turns into six months. Six months turns into nine months. And meanwhile, they're not communicating with me at all. And now I'm realizing they're treating me just like they're treating the other trainees. They're not treating me like somebody that's there to help train. And uh, they're expecting me to be there training four days a week, like I did at the power plant. They're expecting me to work all the shows up there that they put on locally to help those guys learn, but I'm not getting paid anything extra or additional for that. And because none of these are considered WWE shows, I'm only getting that downside guarantee. I'm not getting any extra money at all. And every bit of that's having to be sent back home to my family. You add to that the hardship of you're stuck up there. You don't know where the light is at the end of the tunnel. And everybody else is kind of in the same boat, too. They came from WCW that they set up there. So now you're sharing a one-bedroom apartment with four other guys that were bona fide superstars in WCW, and you're all sleeping on the floor and slumming it and don't even have furniture because you're trying to make it as cheap as possible, and you're all sending your money back home because you don't know how much longer you're going to be there. And at the exact same time you're doing that and having to pay those kind of dues – WWE starts this show called Tough Enough and puts all these guys that's never wrestled before in a mansion and pays for everything and puts them on TV. And so that's the mental gymnastics you're having to play with in a psychological game that you're, you know, fighting through at 
24, 25 years old. And uh, I'm, man, I'm sitting there and it's the only time in my life that I can now look back and I can honestly say I considered myself a very strong willed person, psychologically strong person. That one broke me. You know, I've been up there for so long. And because meanwhile, for me personally, my mother-in-law, who I was very close to, was going through a terminal illness. So I'm thinking I'm up here for no reason when I should really be back home in Alabama with my family, beside them at their bedside. My wife's having to go through all this by herself. I don't get to be there for her and be her support system. And all these things keep kind of uh, accumulating on top of each other. And because the wrestling business is the way the wrestling business is, there are times where you feel really, really, really high and you feel like the biggest superstar in the world. And there's times when you feel like you're at the very low. And when you're at the very low end, man, you start wrapping all these things around yourself and you start going, man, they're out to get me. And while they burying me and why are they ruining my career and why won't they give me an opportunity and I deserve this and I deserve that and everything else. And the sad thing is I can look back now, hindsight being 2020 and not excusing any of those things, but then for the most part, look, I mean, there was nobody out to get me. They just bought WCW. At some point, they had like 12 or 14 guys under contract that had all been world champions. Should I be surprised that there really wasn't room for me on TV? Now, the communication could have been a little bit better, but I also could have had a better attitude about it. I could have tried to make more out of it. The older I get, perspective is a powerful thing. And you can look back with that perspective again, and you can find out, man, I spent that time in my life being more of a problem finder than a problem solver. And again, I, I won't allow myself to be put in that kind of situation. Yeah, that is crazy. Like, I, it's 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 nuts, really, that you got treated. And I'm sorry you got treated. You know, I know you don't like the whole, like, I think, but it's obviously just one of those things. But let's move away from, from all of that. Sure. So you mentioned that you went to GCW and you wrestled back again for the first time in, in, in forever, when it seems like, how was it to be back in the ring again? It was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. Again, my perspective has changed. So if you ask me what it would take for me to get back out there on a regular basis, uh, I have built up a substantial business with my caricature work and everything else. So whatever wrestling offered, they would have to beat that monetarily in order for <laughs> sense from a business perspective. But from me doing it the way that I did it, the, the way it came about was this. I do a podcast with adfreeshows.com called uh, – you know, 60 minute time limit draw with Lashley where I draw a wrestler live and the whole deal and adfreeshows.com is subscriber based in a lot of ways. And so each year, Conrad Thompson and those guys do this wonderful job of rewarding their subscribers by doing like a top guy weekend. And they try to give us a special treatment. It happened to be in Huntsville, Alabama this year. And since I live in Alabama and Conrad does, he asked me if I would come up. And he knows I don't do anything wrestling related. It took him a couple of years to talk me into doing the podcast because I'm one of those kind of people. When I decide I'm done, I'm done. And I'm not going to hokey pokey. I'm not going to play around like maybe I'm kind of in the business and kind of out. I don't like to play those games. And so I was not even doing autograph signings. I was not even doing appearances. When I retired from wrestling, I literally rolled out of the ring and disappeared for 10 years. For 10 years, nobody could find me in wrestling. I was not on social media or anything. And so uh, he, he finally talked me into it because he said, look, we're going to have a lot of activities going on. You just come up and just do caricatures for our fans and do them over in the corner. And I'm sure that I can do that. So I went up and I did caricatures and was reminded 
how wonderful this back and forth with wrestling fans can be, how genuine they can be, how appreciative they are of what we offer. And that makes me grateful that they care that much. And I had a wonderful experience of that throughout the day. And in the background, while this is going on, they had guys there like uh, Road Dog and Jeff Jarrett and uh, Eric Bischoff and uh, David Crockett and Kevin Sullivan. And all those guys sat in a ring with these wrestling fans. And the wrestling fans got to help them book a show. And they helped them make the decisions on how to shape it and who wrestled who and what was going to go on and everything else. So they had like a you know independent wrestling show in the background that the fans got to be involved in on a fantasy level while I'm drawing the whole time. And I'm just experiencing this throughout the day. And at the end of the day, we finish. I do my job. I've drawn my last person. All the fans have left. We're standing around and we go to leave. And I look at the ring and it's empty. And I look at the building and it's empty. And uh, I tell Conrad, I said, hey, you know, I've been in the ring in 13 years. He goes, really? Oh, yeah. I said, I've got to step in it. So I stepped up in. He goes, hold up, wait. Are you really not been in the ring in 13 years? Go, no, legitimately, I'm not. I've not stepped through those ropes in 13 years. Can we film it? Sure, film it. Whatever you want to do, man. And I just stayed out stuff there. They put a camera on me and I took a back bump. And I went, man, that didn't feel bad at all. That felt good. I backed up into the corner, took a step, and took a front bump. Boom. That's, yeah, that's that's all right. And then there was a guy that had wrestled that day who was gracious enough to let me shoot him into the ropes and I threw a drop kick. You know, at 46 years old, threw a drop kick, hit him right on the nose. Timing was perfect. The drop kick was perfect. I still had some height to it and some hops. And I go, man, that felt, you know, felt like riding a bike. And they put a, the camera in my face and I went, I'm here for my day in the sun and for one more run. I ain't done. I ain't done. I ain't done. Like that. And they put it on Twitter and it got a little bit of following and generated some buzz. And GCW came calling and StarCast came calling for that weekend. And uh, AEW was going to be there that weekend as well. And, uh, you know, the people there, Brent Lauderdale, those guys at GCW asked me what I thought about coming back and having one more match and then doing a, a comeback match on their, on their uh, program there, on their Fight TV pay-per-view. I said, yeah, man, let's do it. And I had new gear made. I updated my logos, the whole deal, man. I said, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. You know, and went out there and had a blast and did about 15 minutes with Joey Janela, who's a tremendous talent, man, and was able. What I loved was I didn't feel like I had to hold back. It felt so comfortable. My wind was there. My legs was underneath me. I literally went. 13 years without having a match and walked right into a, a ring and did 15 minutes, man, of the splits, the Bourbon Street Blues, the whiplash off the top rope through a door, uh, suicide dives over the top rope, you know. And I thought, man, this feels great. And I came out of it not the worst for wear. The next night, we went to uh, AEW and was able to meet a few people there that I'd never met before that are some great up and coming talents and felt so humbled, man, when I would try to introduce myself to these guys and I admire their work now and say, man, I was going to introduce myself to you. I'm Lash LaRue. And they go, I know who you are. I grew up watching you. And you, yeah, I thought I was a great fan. And man, that felt great. You know, those guys are so welcoming and cool. And the guys I that I came through the business with are now they're working the mechanisms backstage, you know, and they're the producers and the agents and, I got to hug their necks and talk to them and walk down memory lane with them and meet Tony Khan and talk to them and, and, you know, see what offers might be out there. And, 
we dipped our toe in a little bit and you know, uh, yeah, yeah. And I got some, a little bit of back channeling from WWE from that. And so I had a couple of conversations that were nothing, nothing, you know, uh, substantial, but they don't call you after 13 years because they didn't notice something. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's the wrestling business. The wrestling business means that I could be a week away from signing with somebody or I could be 10 months away from them sitting around in a booking uh, room and deciding that, hey, last would be a great fit for this, or nobody could ever call me again. Who knows? But what made it such a great experience for me was I'm doing so good with my caricature, I don't need it. If it works out and it's wonderful and that door is open, great. Let's do. Let's make some magic happen. And if it doesn't, man, I'm perfectly fine with shadow boxing those new tights and calling it a career. Yeah, I'm good either way. I think I think something really important to point out. Then you were saying like you went backstage, AEW. People are like I know who you are, and everything. Like people need who are watching this and don't didn't watch WCW back in the day. People need to realize people were like, oh, the head, the heavyweights, blah blah whatever. But everything WCW is like that cruiserweight division. No matter what yeah. you say about WCW, that cruiserweight division. Oh yeah, more. like. So it doesn't surprise me the amount of people that you see wrestle today that were inspired by you and the and Jericho, Dean Malenko, Benoit, all those people, because what an incredible division you worked in. Well, thank you. Thank you. It means a lot to me for you to say that because, you know, you had that when they first started bringing in that cruiserweight division and creating what it became. And, and that's totally an Eric Bischoff product there, man. And him working closely with Conan and Conan bringing in a lot of that luchador style and talent but you had all these luchadors who were used to this style and very comfortable with it and then you had some american wrestlers that were more technical wrestlers so some of the guys that you mentioned there early on in their cruiserweight division were guys like Dean malenko and even eddie to a certain extent even though he's of mexican descent but even eddie and and, and chris uh benoit and Dean malenko and all those guys were more technically based than they were lucha style based. You know what I mean? And uh, once the luchador styles really started taking off and you saw the high flying maneuvers, the really the only guys that could do that stuff in about 97, 98 were the luchadors and me and Billy Kidman. So the reason why I was able to kind of make a spot for myself was they didn't have that many American wrestlers that could do that style, you know, and I just kind of taught it to myself and would watch it and be able to go out and have those matches. And I, it was unique because you had someone that could do this wrestling persona and character that I had this gimmick, if you will, on top of being able to carry that style and on top of being able to work well and have good chemistry with, with the other Mexican wrestlers that they brought in. Sorry. I've I've just realised like how long we've been talking, and I feel like we could could talk for another seven hours. Like this has been so much fun talking to you, Lash. But um, we we obviously do need to start bringing this somewhere at some point. But looking back on your career, like, is there anyone you wish you'd got the chance to get in that squared circle with that you'd never got the chance to do? Oh, there's plenty of them, man. And at the top of the list is Brad Armstrong. I would have loved just to have a pure wrestling match with him. Because he was so good, so good. And then the other guys would be Bret Hart. I'd love to have had a match with Bret Hart. I would have loved to have had a match with Ric Flair. 
I would have loved to have had a match with Shawn Michaels. I mean, there's so many great talent. That list goes on and on and on. And, and I'm thankful that I was able to have a match with some of those guys that are so memorable to me because they brought me up so high, like Eddie Guerrero, you know, Chris Benoit, uh, Jericho, uh, Dean Malenko, being able to wrestle guys like Billy Kidman and being able to wrestle Booker T. I wrestled Booker T so many times, man, and we had some good matches. Ray Mysterio, we had unbelievable chemistry. We could do stuff that nobody had ever seen and that we had never done before without even talking about it. We would just fill each other out, and I could shoot him up in the air. And I'd turn around and realize he landed on the top rope. And, and then I'd turn around and he'd jump off and give me a hurricane run, and I'd just catch him and go with it. You know, things like that. And that's where the magic is really made because you need a good dance partner that you can trust and, and be creative with in the moment because you don't know what the fans are going to react to until you're in the ring. So those guys, man, and the fact that I was able to wrestle Kurt Henning and actually have a, have a win over him, you know, wrestle Scott Hall and, and have a good match with Scott Hall. I mean, those things are so memorable. I can remember one particular moment in my wrestling career. It's one of the few times when I've just turned into a fanboy right in the moment because I always try to carry myself extremely professionally. When I was young, especially, and starting out in WCW, I thought, man, they're going to figure out that I'm just some kid that's got no business being here. I got to I got to look like I know what I'm doing and that I'm professional in the long. But I had a match, and I don't even remember who the match was against, but it was during that time when they were taking Macho, and the Macho man would come out, he would interrupt the match, he'd clear the ring, and then he'd set the chair in the middle of the ring and cut a promo. Right. That was his way of getting the crowd reaction. Well, he came out to clear the ring and it was my match. And uh, he gives me the elbow off the ropes. Boom. I take the bump and he goes up the top rope and I look up and I realize as he's doing this, man, that's the macho man about to drop an elbow on me. <laughs> How cool is this? Like I was in the moment so much at that point. I just go, the macho man, Randy Savage, is about to drop an elbow on me. And about maybe six months ago, a friend of mine sent me sort of a gif of him doing that. And I just I keep it on my phone all the time now. If I ever want to be reminded that I did something, a, a substance in my life, oh, well, the macho man dropped an elbow on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Dig it. Phenomenal. Mr. Stevens, do you have any more questions for our wonderful guest? I do. I, I I want to say something first though. Is your character work is unbelievable. I was having right. a, I was having a quick flick through through your X slash Twitter, whatever they call it now. Um, and like your picture, I saw the picture you did of Eddie Guerrero after he suddenly passed away. Beautiful. I I loved that man so much, and that was stunning. I think I saw an Al Snow picture you did as well, which was absolutely unbelievable. Like all of your work that you've done, I was just like, this guy is talented. Like so, it's incredible, man. I just wanted to get that out off my chest first. Um, but what I wanted to ask was, did you ever think that obviously through all the the hardships and the, the turmoil you went through as a child growing up and whatnot, that you'd ever be where you are today? I couldn't fathom it and I couldn't dream it from the standpoint of, of having a clear conscious idea of what it might look like. But as far as overall success and ambition and that drive that's in my spirit, you know, I'm not heavy handed with my faith at all. 
I'm not. If people ask me my opinions and they want to know why I believe the way that I believe, and if someone's interested in faith, I'll sit down and have a theological and biblical conversation with you all day long. Uh, but this is the point where I get to say, all right, yeah, this is the reason why I'm wired the way that I'm wired and why I believe what I believe. I'm very strong in my belief. I believe we were put here by a creator, no matter what you call that or how you see that. I think we were designed to be here. I don't think it happened by, by accident. I don't think that the atoms just happened to align in a certain way and boom, all of a sudden life just existed. I, I think that we were designed and created. We're made in the image of God. I believe in the Imago Dei, which is Jesus Christ, God breathing life into our bodies. Now, if I believe those things, then I believe we get to communicate with him. And if I believe we get to communicate with him through prayer, whatever you call prayer in your life, and however you play that out in your life, whether it's affirmations, whether it's meditation, whatever it might be, we get to have that communication. And in that communication, and, and for me, what, what also informs a lot of my faith is the Bible, and I believe Scripture. And if I read in there, and it says, if I believe all things are possible through God, it's not a stretch and it's not a leap for me to believe that the person that created this in the first place, the entity that breathed life into what we call a world, then has control over it to a certain extent. Now, he allows free will to happen, and he allows us to face the consequences of our actions. But it allows us to face the consequences of our actions, both to the positive and the negative. So if you ask, well, why does he intervene when something bad happens? Well, maybe that's a lesson we need to learn. And at the same time, he doesn't intervene when good things happen either and say, well, that's too good. I've got to yank that one away from you. You know, he gives us the opportunity to flourish and to grow and to decide for ourselves whether we want to love him or follow him or not. But I believe all those things. And the reason why I'm saying them is not to hit you with my faith here at the end. But I say all those things to say that I genuinely, from a very young age, believe, well, if God tells me that all things are possible, if I allow him to push me in the right direction, then I'm going to allow him to guide me in the right directions. I want to make smart decisions. I want to be wise beyond my years. I want to mature. I want to do the right things and not do the wrong things. I want to be as moral as I could possibly be while knowing that I'll never attain perfection. And if I could do all those things, and it circles back around to what we talked about at the very beginning, which is this. What I do doesn't matter near as much as who I am. Who do I want to be when I grow up is the question I had to ask myself. Not what do I want to do or what do I want to be? Who do I want to be? And we have to ask ourselves that every day. And it becomes a constant check on our lives. You're not, you're not where you want to be in your life. Are you not accomplishing the things you wanted to accomplish? Or did you think you were going to be far more successful? Then take some ownership and say, what can I do today to start changing and chipping away to being that person who I want to be? When I shared with you guys about me going through that journey of losing 100 pounds and getting back into shape and, and going through that journey of trying to get better at my craft and put some tools in the toolbox when it came to caricature and figuring out how to turn that into a business. All of that were building blocks into trying to become who I want to be. And who I wanted to be was somebody I could take pride in my appearance. I could take pride in my accomplishments, take pride in my work ethic. I could take pride in building up a business. And now I have this thing that is uniquely mine when it comes to my caricature business. And nobody can take it away from me. It's not dependent on whether or not WWE signs me to a contract. It's uniquely mine. And if my phone stops ringing tomorrow and nobody's booking me out for a show. They still can't stop me from going and buying a booth at the Renaissance fair and setting up a tent and drawing caricatures and selling them individually. 
It's Italian. People can't take that kind of stuff away from you. So, you know, that's the biggest thing that I like to try to push forward towards people is I think sometimes we stop believing in ourselves for whatever reason. And we allow the world to tell us we're less than what we are because of circumstances, or maybe we were born into a poor family, or maybe we weren't given the best opportunities in life from the outset. Okay, maybe you're starting at a deficit compared to somebody else, but you still live in a world where so much is right there at our fingertips for us to make that change for ourselves and be whatever it is that we want to be. And the sky's the limit. The only person limiting you is you. Absolutely. Lash, you are an absolute legend. I'm going to have to throw that out there. You, you are a massive inspiration, and this has been incredible beyond belief. Thank you so much for taking the time out to sit and chat to us today. Hey, man, you guys are awesome. We do this all the time, man, and that's the reason why no problem with how long it goes because it seems like just a a, a drip in time, man, because it's, it's, it's awesome yeah. to have great conversations. They're meaningful conversations. But, dude, we all have a story, right? Mine sounds more dramatic than other people, but we all have a story. (laughs) We all got to live our own lives, man. And I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to come on here, spend a little time with gentlemen and scholars. (laughs) You are indeed men of culture. And it has been. (laughs) Before we let you get out of here, though, sir, any plugs, social medias, websites, anything you want people to go and check out? Not necessarily. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. You guys can drop me a DM if you follow me on X at Lash Can Draw. A little double entendre there. Or if you want to reach out to me directly, <laughs> personally, believe it or not, this is not a rib. This is the truth. My email address is very simple and very easy for the last 25 years. How about Lash WCW at AOL.com? You can vouch for me that that is a legitimate email address. So, <laughs> You know, I've, I've, I've always been an open book, man. I'm pretty transparent and pretty easy to get a hold of. I don't have any particular agenda or anything I'm pushing right now. If you happen to be in the southern United States and you want to book me out and do live caricatures at your event, you can certainly do that. If someone wants me to travel further than that, I'm willing to travel. I travel all the time. It just costs a little bit more. We've, we've had everything on this. Inspiration, Dusty Roads impressions. This has been... <laughs> One of my favorites. I've yeah, absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much, Lash. Means the absolute world. Hey, it was my honor, guys. Thank y'all for having me, man. Thank you for your time. Hit me up anytime. Have a wonderful evening, my friend. Thank you so much again, and we'll catch up soon. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. That's it. Bye-bye. I absolutely loved that conversation so much. Like as an old school wrestling fan, and then just not only that, then to hear all about his art and the what the mindset into it, and just, oh, it's just beautiful. And yeah, he's a wonderful human being. And I, what I admire most about him as well is the fact that no matter how shit things truly got when he was growing up, like he persevered and he just you know made it work and look where he got to. Like it's it's, it's amazing the mindset and everything on him. Uh, he's a very inspirational man, and I really hope that um, I hope he writes a book sometime or you know gives becomes a motivational speaker in some way. I think he would absolutely smash that. It'd be great. Absolutely would. And watching clips from his match with Joe Janela, and which we spoke about in this, get back in there, Lash. You, oh, hadn't missed a beat, sir. Hadn't missed a beat.
yeah, the AW conversation was very tantalizing. Uh, but we, Lash, again, thank you so much for taking the time and sit to chat us for as long as you did as well. It's really appreciated. It was so great. We loved every second. We can't wait to have you back on. And we really hope that you all enjoyed listening to it, as we did recording it. <laughs>